Hello and welcome to another of our very special classic album series of podcasts here on Riot Act, the alternative music podcast. My name's Stephen Hill and his name is Renfrey Deadman. Hello. Hello, Renfrey. Hello, me. How are you doing? I'm all right. How are you? I'm pretty good, mate. I've gorged myself on mid early to mid noughties heavy metal over the last sort of three days. As have I. So, um, which could be a considered either a terrible thing or a brilliant thing i've deciding to make it a brilliant thing because i think i've gone out of my way to pick one of the better aspects of it and, and gorge myself on that but topsy-turvy old time wasn't it very much so in this case i think our personal listening over the last few days has been brilliant most likely mm-hmm. um, because we are dealing with a band at the height of their powers at the time and one of the well not the only bands that have endured from this scene but one of the few who have endured from this one of scene. the few yes i think that's oh. that's a very accurate thing to say so um we should say before we kick off thank you so much for picking up this podcast um it may well be that you're listening to this for free it may well be that we've decided to give part one of this two-part podcast away because what we usually do on our classic album series is one of us either me or Renfrey in this case it actually is Renfrey will pick an album by a band and we will put that over on our patreon page patreon.com forward slash riot act podcast um well we'll put we won't put that album on it we'll put our discussion about said album one of our favorite albums ever uh, on our patreon page now if you're on our patreon page we thank you so much for subscribing to the five pound tier which gets you a couple of these podcast every month one of mine and one of Renfrey's but today we might be doing something a little bit different I mean if you have subscribed you're a lad thank you so much (laughs) if you're listening to this for free um, you'll be getting part one of this Lamb of God double header um, about As the Palaces Burn which is Renfrey's pick well done Renfrey well done me well done good (laughs) pick Um, now basically um, we sort of both picked a lamb of god record and we also both noticed that lamb of god are on the verge of dropping a new album as we record this um renfrey had as the palaces burn and i had sacrament so i think what we're going to do is we're going to record this podcast as renfrey's pick about as the palaces burn as a kind of part one and then when we're done with as the palaces burn we're going to tag in me and i will sort of lead the charge on our second part which is about sacrament mm. but for now if that all makes sense to you but for now let's go over to Renfrey and talk about lamb of god's second album or is it third album Renfrey? uh well in this case i'm gonna say it's second yeah but i think i would have called it third for quite a long time i think once lamb of god called their quote-unquote seventh album seven strum and drang mm-hmm. and it was kind of like okay burn of burn the priest is not our first record um but yeah, yeah we'll talk a little bit about burn the priest a little bit later of course first of all i mean oh. it kind of I mean, just for me it, i mean it kind of is their third album but then if slipknot self-titled is the quote-unquote first Slipknot album and if cowboys from hell is the first pantera album, exactly even though it definitely isn't then i think lamb of god are very much within their rights to consider this a sophomore record exactly yeah um, yeah i think it's so fed, yeah so we like lamb of god then basically the yes service, don't we? yes very very yeah. much so um i mean i think we both have um 
issues about the band, probably very few of which will come up in this chat, to be honest with you, because I think that at this time there was very, very little to complain about with Lamb of God. Um, they were absolutely on fire. And uh, this record um, was very much an outlier for me in that it was, I didn't check out any of these bands because whenever I heard bits and pieces on Scars or whatever, it just really wasn't for me. You know, if I heard bits of God forbid or on earth or whatever, I was just like, it's just no. And I lumped Lamb of God in with all those other bands um, until um, a chance encounter, not a chance encounter until, well, a friend lent me uh, their first three albums. Um, I'll get into that later on. But um, yeah, there are very few metal records from this time and certainly from this scene that i actually cherish but this is one of them um mm. shall we start talking about that scene then that i'm um uh, adhering to yeah i guess it, we should do i mean i was actually going to start by inquiring what you thought about the first couple of lamb of god stroke burn the priest releases and and how we got to that point and where the band were at that point at first um um i have so, i have yeah, got that of, i have interest. got that later on um okay uh, yeah, so so let's wind back to that i think all right fair enough um yeah i mean 2003 then i mean so this album came out on the 6th of may 2003 um that feels like a bit of an odd time for metal and it's kind of one that i can't really talk about with that much in the way of authority because i was sort of swapping out punk and hardcore for kind of pop and indie music around this time mm. so i had as little a foot in metal as I probably had had or have had at any time since the mid nineties, I would say around this time. Yeah. Yeah. I was not too dissimilar because, um, I was at my first year of drama school and not only was I, you know, you, you, you move somewhere where lots of other people have moved from all around the country or in some cases all around the world. And you're suddenly introduced to, many different things and many different types of music many different types of art etc etc mm -hmm. being at drama school the majority of my colleagues and peers weren't listening to metal <laughs> so the new stuff i was being <laughs> yeah i know that feeling. yeah though. yeah yeah <laughs> so the new stuff i was being introduced to was generally like i got into radiohead in a big way around this time you know i got into nick cave in a big way um and i started going kind of india um partly because of the influences around that's, me that's indie uh not not to india i didn't go george harrison no no i didn't do george harrison no um uh yeah so that was that was part of the reason because of the influences around me but the other part of the reason was actually just out of courtesy for my housemates i was like I probably shouldn't be playing metal out really loud to these new people who I'm living with. And I should probably, um, I don't know, just play something that's considered more socially acceptable, uh, for example. So there was, there was a little bit of a push and pull with that. Um, so it was actually, uh, well, fuck it. Let's go into this now. Uh, cause we've already sort of danced around it. It was actually, two years after this album came out that I actually got into it. So I was in my second uh, year at drama school and um, there was a girl in the postgrad um, course 
and we bonded over a mutual love of machine head and i think one day we were on the bus on the way to school and she um brought up lamb of god and i was like i've never really listened to lamb of god and she was just absolutely stunned and couldn't believe it she's like oh my god lamb of god are incredible you have to check them out and she lent me she had um new american gospel uh as the past is burned and ashes of the wake on sort of burnt cdr um so she lent them to me and all I, all I had was these like CDRs with a paper slip on them and the the um, songs quite crudely written onto the side of this piece of paper. I knew nothing else about them. I think As the Palaces Burn was definitely the first one that I listened to. I'm trying to remember. I, I, I didn't have access to the internet or anything like that, so I couldn't find out which one came out first or anything like that and because of that i think i literally just decided i'm just going to listen to them based on af- alphabetical order by title <laughs> so i listened to as the palaces burn then ashes of the wake then new american gospel um what a funny way round to do it I, as well. I, yeah yeah it was a weird it was a like, weird sonically speaking yeah that feels very odd it was it was um but i'm really glad i did it in that way because there are um for years and years and years i just sort of assumed that everyone considered this the classic like this and sacrament was my kind of uh, appraisal of it and then especially around the um 10 year anniversary when they did the reissue and the remix um i kept hearing these dissenting voices saying oh the production is rubbish And then I hear the band saying, oh, we adore that record, but we just cannot stand the production on it. I'm like, I I thought the production was fucking amazing. I thought it was incredible. But then when I heard those dissenting voices going back to it, I was like, oh, yeah, I can see. I can see what they're talking about. It's a little bit like my relationship with Injustice for All, because because I hadn't heard anything prior to Injustice for All. That was really metal. I just thought that was like how it sounded. Um, and it didn't really occur to me that Ashes of the Wake was a much quote unquote better sounding record than As the Palace is Burnt. Although I do think there's a strong argument um, to say that there are things about As the Palace is Burnt which sound much better than Ashes of the Wake, but very little of it is to do with production. <laughs> I think the technical mm. production of this album uh, isn't great or th- or wasn't great, maybe, until the 10th anniversary reissue. But that definitely feels like something we'll be getting onto later. Yeah, oh God, you're jumping well ahead yeah. now, mate, yeah. So um, how did you, well, how did you discover a Lamb of God and when did you first listen to this record? Um, my sort of first take, I guess, on Lamb of God would be, so it was after this. Now, I guess we'll talk about 2003 in general. In, in a I'll minute, do that but a bit, yeah, yeah. I, I was in a sort of similar position where... Getting into new bands in metal around the time this came out was just not really much of a concern for me. Mm. I kind of felt like I was, as I said before a few times, drifting away from listening to metal and particularly new metal. Not a new metal. I mean, I definitely was drifting away from that, but but newer mm. metal bands. Um, and um, when that kind of 
thirst for that came back, which would have been, I mean, I've said it a whole bunch of times and I'll probably say it again when we, we come to do a Mastodon special and I'll probably really, really go into it then. But getting Leviathan by Mastodon was such a massive, massive record for me, um, followed by Ascendancy and um, from Mars to Sirius by Gojira as well. They were kind of three really, really big ones. And I would say the other one probably would be getting... Um, uh, Ashes of the Wake and Sacrament together. I actually got Sacrament on a... Uh, well, maybe I should save this for the, the second part, but I, well, they're kind of interlinked, so why not? Um, I got it on on um, import, if you remember getting import CDs. Mm-hmm. I got it before it was actually out in the UK. And I don't really know why I did that, because I basically had only heard Laid to Rest from it being on Guitar Hero. And it's no, it's, the first time I heard it was it's at the start of Metal Headbanger's Journey if you've ever seen that yes. quite excellent documentary. And I was like, the, the first riff kicks in. I was like, Oh yeah. And I, I watched it in the cinema, metal headbangers journey. Um, and it was, there was me and about eight other people and all of us were on our own mm. to mm-hmm. show the sort of, <laughs> and it did feel a little bit like, yeah, we're all kind of yeah. nerdy losers watching this. But as soon as that song kicked in, I was like, fuck me, this song's great. Mm. And, um, and so I was like, who is that? And it was Lamb of God. And it was probably a couple of months or so before Sacrament was coming out. Um, and I sort of ordered it and I got both of them sent together. Uh, so, and I think I made a point of listening to Ashes of the Wake first because I was like, I should, this is the one that has got the song that I know on it. And so, yeah. So um, I had those two and then I went back and okay. listened to the sort of the, the other ones. I think I then bought... Um, I think I bought Killer. De- I think I found Philadelphia, the live, mm-hmm. um, the live album from just before this. Uh, I think that uh, that was found cheap in FOP oh. somewhere. You know, you go to FOP and get a CD for a five or three quid or something. I think still great days. still regularly do it if I can. Mm. Happy days. Um, so I got Philadelphia, and I remember hearing Black Label and being like, "Fucking hell, that mm. sounds amazing!" Mm. So that's when I bought New American Gospel, and then. After that, when I was really, really deep into Lamb of God, that is when I bought As a Palace's Burn. Uh, and I was somewhat disappointed by it, I have to say, mm. at that point. Why was that? It just sat, so I thought um, Ashes of the Wake and Sacrament sounded clean and precision sharp and crisp and mm. massive. And I thought New American Gospel sounded so raw and rough and ragged Mm -hmm. and i thought as the palaces burn was neither of those things that i mean that's it was kind of both of those things but neither of those things it was a a nasty halfway house uh, looking back on it now i can't i can't argue with that i mean when i first heard as the palaces burn i would have been probably like what are you on about but having heard Mm. now heard having heard ashes of the wake and New American Gospel and everything they went on after uh, to do afterwards as well. Um, yes, I think that is absolutely true. Um, we'll get onto this later, but my argument is it takes the best raw aspects from New American Gospel and the. Um, I mean, I don't think I don't think as the Palaces Burn sounds like a great record, but I think it sounds like a better record than New American Gospel if that makes sense it, it, it does yeah so i think that's fair so you're mm. saying you're saying it's sort of a halfway house um and neither gets one or the other whereas my argument would have been it takes the best of both 
and and mm. is, is you know so we kind of both agree with just one's half glass half empty glo- well the other's glass half full kind of thing yeah it is a little bit yeah, yeah. um so yeah that that was sort of where i was with it but I, I suspect we will both production wise and obviously as we go further into talking about sacrament we'll get into that but i think um uh the success of of lamb of god pre kind of 2003 just to kind of mention that very briefly um i found a an interview from revolver magazine from 2003 that actually came out just before um this record was released and it said in the interview i'm probably going to quote from it a little bit but um prosthetic records estimated that new american new american gospel rarely sold more than 200 copies a week yet nearly three years after it's release it still continued to sell Mm. exactly that many copies Mm. every week continually so it didn't kind of bust out and was this big kind of hit um obviously it came out in 2000 so it is like you know the boom year for new metal infest uh hybrid theory um the sickness you know white pony all of these really big kind of commercially viable massive new metal records came out at that time obviously produced by steve austin from today is the day we should probably mention him because mm-hmm. that sort of nasty sound that it has i think he's probably got quite a lot to do with him you know they changed their name from burn the priest i listened to the burn the priest album this morning um what do you think of that burn the priest as a record oh, i was gonna get onto that later but all right uh, oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> no 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 let's do no, it no, that's fine um i think burn the priest it doesn't do an awful lot for me personally it's not um doesn't ha- it, it it sounds like a bunch of songs as opposed to a cohesive album um it's kind of quite there's bits which are sort of grindy and there's bits which it, it, mm. it's 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 perfectly fine there's nothing on it to indicate that this band are about to become what they're about to become um same lineup bar isn't it mark morton's the only person who's not on that record yeah um yeah. You know, um, like it, it's perfectly fine. I think I own it, but the only reason I own it is because it's part of Lamb of God's discography. It's not. It's not because I actually like the record in and of itself, and I don't listen to it very often. Mm, um, so, what do you think? I I like it. I like it. I mean, I like it. it I just think I like how fucking remorselessly savage it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. I do. I do. I do like that about it. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, I suppose it was quite surprising that something like Black Label got a bit of traction on an MTV yeah, around that time. Yeah, Apparently yeah, they yeah. got asked to actually buy someone at MTV to make a video, even though they didn't have any money. Um, so they went and made a video and it got a little bit of traction, which kind of, I guess, brings us to what you wanted to talk about, which was the state of metal around that time, was it not? Yes. Um, I think specifically um, we should talk about the new wave of American heavy metal, which is a, which is a part of... I, I suppose we've both just admitted it that like part of the reason we haven't talked about this era very much is because neither of us were fully in on metal at the time. I was distracted with my studies and with not wanting to piss off my housemates with loud, heavy metal music. And you had kind of, um, well, you'd just sort of taken a, a hiatus from metal generally around this time. Yeah. And I'll tell you for why as well, <clears throat> because if you look at the sort of, like I say, trying to find new bands around that time, um, was just not something that I was particularly interested in doing really. And when you look at the sort of bigger bands from the, you know, the real arse end of what was new metal and the kind of bigger bands from that time, 2003, we got St. Anger by Metallica. We got Meteora by Linkin Park. I mean, I just don't like Linkin Park, so whatever. 
Golden Age of Grotesque by Marilyn Manson. Results may vary by Limp Biscuit. Take a look in the mirror by Korn. Self-titled Deftones record, obviously, is a great record. I, I mean, none of those albums people would describe as career highlights. And in some cases, that's some proper crap from some big bands. Take a look in. I mean, I take I a look in the mirror is fucking atrocious. Awful. Um, results may results may vary. Yeah. Terrible. I don't think Golden Age of Grotesque is all that. No. Um, Obviously, self-titled Deftones, I feel harsh even putting that in with that stuff mm. because that is a great That's record. A but record. It's, cer- it's a brilliant record, but it's certainly not um, what most people would describe as the best. I don't know many people who think that's the best Deftones record. It was It was certainly weirdly received as a sort yeah. of odd disappointment at the time, um, mm. which really I think is just down to how brilliant White Pony was. But I remember... Mm. I remember um, opening Kerrang in my local newsagent and skipping straight to the Deftones review and being disappointed that it got 4Ks. But that yeah. that's kind of how everyone's, that's what everyone's attitude towards Deftones at the time was. It was like, oh my God, they're gods and like nothing they do can be bad. And then so for mm. it to be 4Ks instead of five, it was like, oh no, they fucked up. And it's yeah. like, well, they didn't really fuck up. They no. they wrote Minerva for fuck's sake. Uh, yeah, it's you know. a great, I mean, it's a, it's a great record, <clears throat> yeah. but it is, I mean, the Deftones, the discography of Deftones is so great that it would be way down the list if I was ranking my favourite Deftones records. Yeah, it would be way down there. And and that's me saying, you know, I mean, I think if any of the other bands I just mentioned, with the exception of maybe Metallica, released that record, I think it would be in the top three of any of their best records. Yep. Um, but, you know, is it was not a good... It was a pretty dodgy time to be one of the bigger bands. And when you think of also the kind of dregs of what was left of new Metal, what they were putting out, I mean, not only did I not like that sort of stuff anyway, when you're getting to, like, the third and fourth album by, like, Payable on Death by P.O.D., Seasons by Seven Dust, One Life It's All by One Minute Silence, Truant by Alien Ant Farm, Faceless by Godsmack, Shadows Owned by Static X, Confession by El Nino, Rawback by Sepultura. Just like, you know, not just, I mean, again, with the exception of, I like Static X a bit and I like Sepultura a lot, as, we, as we've already discussed. Um, but obviously a very bad time for Sepultura and the other bands like, you know, Alien Ant Farm and P.O.D. and uh, and Godsmack and Il Nino, like never good, no. never good. And, you know, two, three albums in some cases after their sort of commercial peak when you could at least go, well, you know, I don't really like it, but it's a quote unquote a banger or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, even beyond that, like beyond the fucking pale. So even the bands that you knew about were just, just awful. So that was the sort of why I think I, I was just like, I'm done. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm done with metal. It's crap. It's I, just crap. I did feel a similar thing around this time, actually. Um, and into all of that came the new wave of American heavy metal. Now, mm. first of all, um, I want to... I have an idea of what the new wave of American heavy metal is. And it appears that my idea of it and Wikipedia's idea of it are very, very different. Um, So... First of all, I just wanted to ask if you could define for our listeners what the new wave of American heavy metal is to you, Steve, as as you understand it. To me, the new wave of American heavy metal was uh, a kind of bridge between um, the more commercially sound, the more commercial sounding metallic hardcore bands, which became metalcore, 
and a group of bands who were very lit much less to do with the shiny parts of new metal i mean i wouldn't completely completely claim that new metal had nothing to do with the new wave of american heavy metal because i think you know devil driver would have been considered one of the whose self-titled album came out this year would have been considered a new wave of american heavy metal band right now that's des from cold chambers band i also think if you listen to another album that came out that year the impossibility of reason by chimera mm-hmm. not a million miles away from the kind of staccato chuggy bouncy stuff that was happening in the, the early part of new metal i don't think they're as good as a band like fear factory for example but i don't think that that approach is a million miles away um and then you've got bands like i don't know 5.0 or whatever who are probably less one of the ones that you would think about less but when you think of the unearths and the shadows fall and i mean what came out that year waking the fallen by event sevenfold um were, they were kind of put in with it originally the rise of brutality by hate breed i mean maybe them not so much that came out that year hot damn by every time i die probably not really anything to do with it ember to inferno by trivium i mean that trivium are a great example of what the new wave of american heavy metal was it is um a a return to the 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 kind of the classic idea of what a metal band is meant to look like and sound like Frail Words Collapsed by As They Lay Dying, Dying came out that year as well. And I think that um, that kind of post-hybrid uh, theory idea that I often talk about how some bands took Linkin Park and went, oh, that means we can metal can be poppier and it can be happier and it can be shinier and it can be about dance music and it can be about rap music and it can be about pop music. And that's all fine. We can embrace all of that stuff. Um and it just became more and more and more commercial against the no, 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 this is it. We've had enough now. Metal is about denim and leather and heaviness and brutality and just normal dudes with long hair and beards playing big riffs and shouting. And that is kind of the new wave of American heavy metal for me was a lot of bands who sat very firmly on the, you know, Megadeth and Testament t-shirts brigade you know it was a return to the old school values of what metal used to be yes um as as a response to new metal i think um absolutely something which we will get into um i am just gonna chuck more for fun than anything but i'm just gonna chuck out a few examples listed on the wikipedia uh new wave of american heavy metal uh entry uh and ask if in your opinion these bands fit into the new wave of american heavy metal movement go on then afi (laughs) is it really say that Mm -hmm. you're fucking kidding agnostic front andrew andrew wk at the drive-in i'm sorry between the buried oh i've got so many more mate (laughs) between the buried and me I mean, I obviously when you say that now, I go, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. But at least back in the day, I mean, it's a bit. I mean, if you're going to put Dillinger in it, I, I presume the Dillinger the Escape, Escape Plan are in there. Yeah, of course they are. Yeah, <laughs> the Blood Brothers, the Blood Brothers, <laughs> the Chariot, Cold I mean, Cold uh, Chamber, I the de- Cold Chamber. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, this one's brilliant. Coheed and Cambria. <laughs> In what world? As it's because you... they were on equal vision yeah, at that exactly, time, Coheed exactly. and Cambria. That's, that's it. I mean, I, at least I can understand how that got in there. I mean, you've probably figured out I'm just doing A to C there. Um, but there's a hell of a lot more. Um, just two, Who else? Just two more. Ex- well, just two more examples. Uh, nine Inch Nails. <laughs> Your face has dropped so much. And Thrice. What? <laughs> yeah. Again, Thrice on a lot of punk and hardcore compilations yeah, and, still, and albums at the time. Still. I mean, like... I, who else? Fucking Jimmy... Please don't have a Jimmy World on Oh, I, Avril Lavigne? I didn't see on there. <laughs> Um, I mean, by, by all means, feel free to bring it up um, well, whilst we're discussing I'm, this. Um, I'm going to have a look. That is insane. But yeah, I found that really, I mean, initially, because my knowledge on this subject is, I would never pretend to be a, uh, an expert. I was like, have I got it wrong this whole time? Uh, and I'm early 90s. I can't remember. What the f- yeah. It, the, originated in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah post grunge its origin it consists of a group of post grunge that's absolutely bizarre so the point the point i mean to be fair the, you know the <laughs> one of the lessons of this is 25 to life don't believe everything you read on wikipedia <laughs> drowning pool botch <laughs> i mean this is mad thursday mm-hmm. renfrey this is mad this is the maddest thing i've ever seen yeah white zombie are in it yeah you fucking hell youth of today are in here yeah in what fucking world a youth of today that's possibly the stupidest one in wikipedia world they are corrosion of conformity in the chromags the crumb suckers mate this is mad we just hell, this is mad we're just going to take a 10 minute break listeners while steve's brains dribble out of his head champion <laughs> i mean cold it's bizarre, isn't it? This is mental. This is the shittest thing I've ever... Corner in here! <laughs> Fucking corner in here! Syst- what? System of a downer in here? Uh, this is mad. So anyway, Pant- so reading that I- made me think, oh, is my interpretation incorrect? I mean, no. I don't think it is. Um, but really, if we get down to brass tacks... The purpose of these genre tags or movements or whatever is to describe the bands to people who've never heard them, right? So they at least get a rough idea of the sort of sonic ballpark we're talking about when we discuss them. Yeah. And for me... White zombie for fans of At The Drive. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And for me, adding new wave of American heavy metal as a descriptor to Coal Chamber, for example, doesn't fill in any blanks that the term new metal hasn't already covered, you know? So that's, that is, you know, if people want to know the reason why both me and Steve are in disbelief at, at this ridiculous list, that's, that's the reason. When I think of new wave of American hard, uh, new wave of American heavy metal, I think of bands like Killswitch Engage, Shadows Fall, Unearth, God Forbid, uh, Lamb of God basically which is a bunch of bands i don't like yep. and lamb of god uh interestingly <laughs> um i read a really interesting editorial in the new wave of american heavy metal from metal injection which said as its mainstream audience began to ebb in 2002 new metal was left vulnerable on its metal flank with virtually no underground network of zines or venues and a dwindling dwindling set of journalists willing to say nice things about it there was little goodwill to fall back on 
Younger audiences, ones who were too young to remember metal's original heyday, had grown tired of being told that this is the only form of metal that matters now. Guitar solos are for old people, wear these stupid baggy pants. Soon enough, new metal became a dirty word, much in the way hair metal had in the early 90s. It's not as if a light switch was flipped and everything changed, but 2002 and 2003 were definitely transitional years. There was clearly an emerging audience who wanted something heavy, but without the obligatory nods to hip-hop and goth culture. Mm. I think that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this whole new wave of American heavy metal movement was, as we've already sort of said just a reaction to new metal and the, the sort of third fourth maybe even fifth wave of um uh new metal bands um that yeah. were just really diluting the formula and it was really just and there was this just desire and this need to go back to basics almost or just go back to something original and quote unquote true Mm. Um, I kind of wonder, did, did the, the the term true metal come out of this period? It probably did. Maybe it didn't. No, no, no. That's Man of War, isn't uh, it? Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. That's like way back. I mean, I don't think, I think that attitude existed, certainly. Uh, it certainly felt like it had a, res- it certainly felt like it had a resurgence, that attitude Absolutely, around yeah, this time. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's kind of two ways to look at this and the first way is that, you know, what you're saying about that kind of we must now be true and blah, blah, blah thing is is one side of it. And I think the other side of it is often, you know, there will always there's always going to be like that reaction. I don't think it just happened with, um, you know, the new wave of American heavy metal, because if you look at the list of albums that have nothing to do with that, really, that came out and got quite a lot of press and a lot of love that year, you look at. Damnation by Opeth came out that year. Yep. And that's really the first time sort of post-Blackwater Park where I really became fully aware of, started to become aware of Opeth. They were yep. not really a band that um, that that really would have got that much commercial attention back in sort of 1997, 98, like that sort of thing. Wasn't getting it so much. Um, and certainly in the, the, the 99, 2000, 2001 era, it's pretty difficult for those bands to slip through. Yeah. You've got like Hate Crew Death Roll by Children <laughs> of Bodom. Again, a band who'd been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, a bit, or not a long time, but a while and hadn't really ever got any kind of pressing Kerrang or Hammer who are now starting to be talked about like, you know, this band are great. Um, Anthems of Rebellion by Arch Enemy. Kind of the, once Angela Gossal joined that band, it seemed like there was quite a big swell towards them as well. Um, and then the kind of, black metal going over the top or i mean in both cases both into the mainstream and way over top you know damnation of the day by cradle of filth came out that year death cult armageddon which is a pretty massive album for dimmy borger came out that year um you've also got the return of like anthrax came back with um we've come for you all yeah which was a very very good comeback album um rob halford rejoined judas priest that year as well yeah which felt like a pretty significant thing. You know, we just had Bruce coming back into Iron Maiden a couple yeah. of years beforehand and Brave New World coming out, which I think kind of reinvigorated people for the idea of classic metal a little bit as well. Yeah, Dance of Death came out this year by Maiden. Dance of Death came out this year as well. Um, and another big deal, I think, as well, was MTV brought back Headbangers Ball. I was just about to come on to this. Mm. Uh, so, yes, Headbangers Ball came back on the air in 2003 in the spring. 
Um, having a metal show with MTV's name rec recognition behind it again was a really big deal, basically. Uh, yeah. Metallica wound up hosting the first episode, which dovetails quite nicely with the release of their much-anticipated album, St. Anger. Uh, we all know how that turned out, but in hindsight, it does make a lot of sense. And this is um, a comparison I hadn't heard, thought of before. Here was the biggest metal band of all time trying to find itself again, but still hamstrung by the musical norms of the time. And here was the metal audience trying to get back in touch with its true self, but left to put up with the dissatisfying wash of solo-less solo -less superficial drivel. It, it does feel like a very pertinent thing to have happened at that time as well, because when you think about it, new metal is the most commercial metal has ever been, right? Yeah. The idea that during the absolute peak years of new metal, there was no metal show on MTV mm -hmm. during the Corn, Manson, Linkin Park, Biscuit, Papa Roach years. Yeah. It's insane, really, isn't it? <clears throat> it's insane it that, you know, these bands were <laughs> these bands were topping the chart. I mean, I was saying the other day, like, Issues by Corn kept 2001 by dr dre off the top of the charts and you think like that is it's not even a good corn album and it's like the, this masterpiece of hip-hop it kept that and celine dion off the top of the charts yeah, right? yeah, yeah. and you think it's fucking insane that you didn't go for that and they waited until it was basically totally moribund creatively yeah. to go okay now yep yeah, now metal's back it's a really, really odd thing to do. I mean, it just goes to show how out of touch those people are, really. Well, I wonder, just playing devil's advocate, and I'm, I don't know if I believe this or not, but I wonder if um, metal was so much a part of the mainstream, they didn't think it was necessary to have a specific show for metal. I mean, I don't agree with that, but mm. you know, that might have been the thinking at the time. I don't know, really. Uh, I would imagine i can't imagine that would have been it because you think that i mean they kept it when nirvana came but you know like it's focus switched to alternative music yeah true. quite heavily in the early 90s yep. and you know it was around when i say metal was its most commercial i mean when headbangers ball was covering bon jovi and motley Crue and poison and stuff like that i mean they were they're arguably the second most you know kind mm -hmm. of commercially viable um period for metal really yep. um so it does seem like an odd thing to do. I think they just sort of had MTV2 and they were like, well, we should probably bring this back because it's what people like. Yeah. Um, without really thinking that Limp Bizkit were about to completely implode. Yeah. And so were Korn. And, you know, a lot of these bands were about to drop off the face of the earth. Yeah. And in their place, they were kind of replaced <coughs> by something which is definitely more to do with heavy metal um but i'm not necessarily sure that that's what mtv anticipated probably it being pro Do you know what I probably mean? not but certainly headbangers ball was a brilliant platform for this new scene to sort of come through um they released a few compilations headbangers ball and the first one is very much split between those fairly crap new metal bands <clears throat> a couple of the good ones are put in there as well but it, it also has like loads of tracks by like you know, the likes of Killswitch and Shadows Fall and Lamb of God and all that sort of thing. So you can see the sort of transition happening. And then as each successive compilation comes along, it gets more um, new wave of American heavy metal than it is new metal. Um, 
I found a really fascinating blog post um, from Doc Coyle from God Forbid. Um, not someone whose writings I would normally read because I don't particularly have any interest in God Forbid. Although Doc Coyle seems like a very fascinating and interesting dude who has a very... He's in Bad Wolves now? Yes, he is in Bad Wolves. So he's made some money i would imagine yeah 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 i imagine he has but he had a fascinating insight into the end of the new wave of american heavy metal era um, he said the world always changes around any musical or cultural movement but unlike punk killing disco or grunge killing glam metal our group of bands came up in a completely anomalous era in that we existed right on the fulcrum of the pre and post internet ages this fact had mostly downsides. Because we didn't exist in a world without internet downla- downloading, which completely shrunk the size of the overall music economy, in turn we missed out on the million dollar deals, metal bands signing to major labels and gold and platinum sales benchmarks being commonplace. But on the other side of the sh- shit sandwich, we also didn't grow up in a completely digital world. We had to learn on the fly how to run a MySpace page or promote via social networking or record demos or albums out of our bedrooms with no budget. Bands like Suicide Silence, Job for a Cowboy, and In This Moment got record deals from blowing up on MySpace. A band like Periphery has rewritten the book on how to promote your band and capitalise on other revenue streams like online and on-tour lessons which subsidise your band business. Bigger bands had management and label people to help with the transition, but smaller bands had to figure it out on their own with varying degrees of success. This was a Darwinian sink or swim, a moment as a moment as we have had in recent history, comparable to subsisting during the transition into the electric age or horses to cars or radio to television. There is always collateral damage in evolution. And I, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. There was that's a great <clears throat> point. Yeah. There were so many mm. things going on at this time, which bands had to learn how to do themselves. And a lot of the time they just weren't very good at it like to be totally frank and why w- yeah. why would they be <laughs> like they they didn't expect to have to do all this stuff but um i mean the amount of like i don't know shit artwork you see from that time because that these are bands with no money or no access to sort of um image libraries or anything like that and so you just have someone in the band who like vaguely has an a level in fine art or something just put something together it just looks dreadful you know um there's a lot of that sort of thing um around this era um you've gone over the records that came out in 2003 quite a lot i think it might just be worth looking at maybe the top three of metal hammers albums of the year that year and kerrang's albums of the year that year just to um because you've done quite a lot of it already but for metal hammer uh it was uh through the ashes of empires Machine Head uh, was number one. Mm-hmm. Waking the Fallen by Avenged Sevenfold was number two. And Casually Dressed and Deep in Conversation was number three. Um, all mm-hmm. metal records to, to, to varying degrees, yeah. um, but in quite different parts of the metal landscape. Um, Kerrang! It was quite different. <clears throat> um, no metal in the top. I bet I, can guess, I bet I can guess what's number one. Yeah, go on. Permission to Land. Of course it is, yeah. The Darkness yeah, by Permission to Land is number one. Delaus and the Comatorium is number two by the Mars Volta. And Antenna by Caven is number three, uh, who, you know, kind of were that a metal a band, fuck- but yeah. that wasn't a metal album. What were you going to say? Sorry? That is a fucking great top three. In fact, it's a great top six. It is. No, it's not a great top six. I don't think much of Waking the Fallen, to be honest. 
Um, oh, sorry. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Kerrang. I mean, the the Kerrang albums of the year are pretty good this year, but they're not they're not very metal. I have to say. I mean, hmm. Caven had metal elements, but Antenna's not really a metal record. Uh, then we have to go down to Akakoka, um, number nine with Corona Zone. Um, Anthrax, we come for you all is in there. It's we can't call Killing Joke a metal band, can we? Um, nah. Poison the Well, You Come Before You is at number 16. Deftones is at number 17. Yeah. And that's it, really, for metal in Kerrang's mm. albums of the year that year. I did look at Metal Hammer's albums of the year that year. And interestingly enough, Lamb of God were in the top 25 yes. in Metal Hammer. Yes. But it was actually New American Gospel. Now, I'm wondering about this because... I looked at exactly the same list. It's the list that all us journalists looked at, rocklist.net. Um, yeah, yeah. And I believe, surely, that's a typo. Because why on earth would an album that came out in 2000 be in Metal Album, Metal Hammer's albums of 2003? So I well, think that's actually As I, the Palaces Burn. Well, possibly because they didn't get those albums released until they were signed to Epic in the uk oh right okay because my my assumption had been that that was actually as the palaces burn that was number 25 but maybe you're right i don't know i don't know if you look at, uh, at this actually it, you know this album was only released as the palaces burn in actually in 2004 in the in the european union oh right once the band had signed to epic oh yeah. i totally missed that okay i didn't realize that um mm. although surely new american gospel would have been released at the same time wouldn't it i don't know probably yeah i don't know that i don't know that will probably have to mm. remain a mystery unfortunately um i was hoping that i maybe had that particular issue of metal hammer but i wasn't really buying it all that much around this time for reasons we've already... an a on the front cover on it <laughs> that's right <laughs> i was gonna say it probably did for reasons we already discussed but yes no it probably did at the time um, um yeah i mean that's, it's an interesting thing isn't it i mean that is quite telling the the metal hammer and Kerrang difference because they used to be fairly similar yeah. hammer and Kerrang yeah. really in the sort of years previous in the previous sort of five or six years to this but then i do think very definitely um they both started to branch off into their own little realm where they have pretty much remained for the most part ever since and i think i mean for me 2000 this is why this, this whole period is interesting because i think this is this is where the but i know i speak a lot about the hybrid theory thing but i think this is where the battle lines are completely drawn up for the true metal elitist versus the kind of new school posers battle that we've basically been fighting for the last couple of decades it kind of begins here mm. um it feels like a very difficult polarizing time to be a metal band and it feels like you would never be able to appeal to everyone ever again. Yeah, it's interesting as well, I think, um, talking about the differences between the two publications. Metal Hammer's album of the year this year quite famously got two Ks in Kerrang! Um, through the Ashes of Empire in, in a review which mm. is now seen as relatively laughable, let's be honest. Um, you know, uh, yeah, it, 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 they only gave it two Ks, which is just so mad um that's such a good album um well, that's kind of the culmination of the end of that year isn't it i mean that that came out in december mm. and it was this radical return to form for machine head after those two stinkers and i think i mean certainly in this country i don't really know how big machine head were in the rest of the the world but i think certainly 
having had all those albums that were very much the kind of new wave of American heavy metal sort of bubbling under, I would have thought Through the Ashes of Empire is a real statement from a, a bigger band. A bit like what we're talking about, Sepultura taking new metal and being like, okay, well, we're doing that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Machine Head, obviously not taking it, but going back to that more classic kind of metal tropes probably gave made everyone else go "Mm, maybe this is gonna be a thing then i Mm -hmm. guess yeah i I think i think that's quite possibly the case absolutely um so getting back to lamb of god specifically as you mentioned this is technically their sophomore album although there was the burn the priest album um the band changed the name from burn the priest to lamb of god because they were struggling to get gigs in america's bible belt effectively um so when they changed it to lamb of god i think some people got the impression that they were actually a christian uh heavy metal act (laughs) which is quite funny um uh and they yeah so they released burn the priest which i'm ho-hum about you quite like it and then new american gospel which I'm very, very keen on and very fond of, but weirdly, I all I see it as very separate from the other Lamb of God records because it was really quite different, wasn't it, to the other yeah, Lamb it was. of God albums? Yeah. Um, I don't think Lamb of God had quite managed to deliver what would become their signature sound before As the Palaces Burned came out. No, it was much more... I mean, I think that's one of the things I really like about New American Gospels. It is, it's much more extreme. Everything feels much more extreme. Yep. Rather than metal, it feels almost like extreme metal. Hardcore, punk, do you know what I mean? Grindcore. These are all things that it reminds me of, which are not necessarily things that Lamb of God have become famous for. Absolutely. It's interesting you say that. Um, I've got Chris Adler's um, views on both of those records here. Um, on Burn the Priest, he said... We were called Grind at the time, even though there was no grind in it. It was very dirty and almost punk rock, crusty kind of stuff. I think that's fair. Uh, whereas New American Gospel, he said, was this pummeling Meshuggah meets a weird hardcore band album, <laughs> which I think is also f- fair. I'd, I'd never yeah, good. never seen Meshuggah in it before, but when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, I can kind of see that. Not quite to Meshuggah's uh, abilities, but you know, I, I get where it comes from. With As the Palaces Burn, he said it was where Lamb of God really embraced their thrash metal influences. I'm realising that this is going to be a very special record. And for those people on the fence about liking us, this is certainly going to define their decision one way or the other. Yeah, I read that. Mm. Mm. What do you think of that? Well, I definitely think, I, I think looking back at that quote now, it seems quite pertinent and quite astute do you know what i mean yeah because they'd obviously felt like this is the direction that we're going to go in uh it is really different from the previous two releases and in fact all three of those releases are quite different from each other they are uh but yeah in terms of what do lamb of god sound like i think you might need a few seconds if someone's if, if you're someone who's coming to lamb of god from i don't know from say resolution onward or even from wrath wrath or sacrament onward and you listen to burn the priest or new american gospel or as the palace is burn only one of them really i think are you going to go oh yeah it's definitely lamb of god straight away Agreed. and that's as the palace is burned absolutely yeah yeah 
Um, so, the record was produced by Devon Townsend. Hooray! We get an opportunity to talk about Devon Townsend loads. Um, yeah. Who actually released the um, self-titled Strapping Young Lad album that year as well, we should say. Yep. Busy boy, wasn't he? he when is he not? <laughs> when is he <laughs> yeah, not? That's true. Um, it was Chris Adler hearing Strapping Young Lad City that made him want to pursue the musician slash producer. Uh, you can imagine why a band would want to sound like Strapping Young Lad did on City, can't you, Steve? Because it's fucking amazing. Oh, fucking absolutely. Yeah, big time. Of course. That record is... Yeah, great record. 23 years old as we record, and it is the kind of metal record which sounds like it could have been released yesterday. I think it's a fucking masterclass, that album. Um, yeah. Devin admits to not even listening to the copy of New American Gospel that was sent to him prior to agreeing to do the producer gig. <laughs> um, Devin and Gene Hoagland from... Uh, Hoagland from strapping young lad went to see the lamb of god opening for mushroom head uh, apparently there were around 50 people at the show uh mushroom head doing well in the post new metal yeah era. quite good. um good to hear the conditions as you would imagine were quite against lamb of god you know playing this shitty show to 50 people um and supporting mushroom head for fuck's sake you know the conditions were against them and Devon went away from the gig, not sure if they were any good or not, but he was willing to do it anyway. <laughs> That's good of him. So he came into it with, with a very nonchalant kind of like, yeah, whatever, fuck it, it's a job kind of attitude. And he's very honest about that. A lot of um, the information I've got for this um, uh, podcast is from the, there's a 70 minute um, anniversary special um, about this mm. uh, documentary on the um, yeah. 10th anniversary reissue and a lot of it is from there and it's really it's one of those great documentaries when a band have had enough time away from it to be totally brutally honest because they've kind of got all over all that stuff now so they're very very open with what a difficult process doing this record was um he spoke to chris adler whilst he was packing up at that mushroom head show um, who said that he was also a fan of the work that Devon had done with Soil Work on their Natural Born Chaos record. Um, mm -hmm. So it was, I think it was that Soil Work album and City that made Chris Adler want to pursue Devon. Um, but they realised quite rapidly um, once Devon got down to the studio that a lot of the things that Chris Adler liked about the production on City and um, Natural Born Chaos um yeah. were based on the engineer Devin had worked with on those records rather than him so there was a bit of a like oh <laughs> you're not quite who we thought you were going to be um there were tensions during recording anyway because lamb of god by their own admission were not really in a place at this point in time where they were prepared for a producer to come in and tell them to make changes to the songs themselves um, mm -hmm. they weren't really willing to hear anyone out who would say maybe you should drop that chorus maybe you should drop that verse kind of thing um, I think they were open to smaller changes but changes that big they were just like nope so if Dev I think Devin learned quite quickly not to suggest them really well mate just to kind of um, <clears throat> add to your point um, this is uh, the, the gap in time, as you say, people being very open about stuff. I, as I said, I found an interview just before this album was released from Revolver from back in 2003, speaking to Chris Adler. And he says of Devin Townsend, we were like, this is the album. These are the songs. 
This is the way they're staying. We need your help in getting great performances out of us, great sounds and gluing them together. And he came through like a champ. <laughs> so in the direct aftermath of this album being recorded, it sounds like everyone's playing the happy families mm. thing, mm. which I was like, hmm, that's weird, isn't it? Because all I've ever heard is everyone going, oh God, what a, what a fucking nightmare this was. I think he's, I think Chris Adler's worded that very well. I will say, but maybe for yeah. reasons that I will go on to, um, because it sort of spoils my whole point about the production of this record. Um, but yes, uh, Chris Adler's a, a, a wise guy. Um, a wise guy. He's a wise guy. Um, so not only were there those tensions, but Devin was hideously unprepared for the sessions as well. Um, he bought a computer uh and asked for it to be shipped to the studio so that he could use a pro tools rig that he was already familiar with but the only problem was he was too technically ignorant to order a mac with pro tools and instead ordered a pc with nuendo which was software that he wasn't familiar with not only that but the computer got lost in customs and didn't show up until three weeks into recording and when it finally did it had been destroyed um in in transit and Devin had absolutely no idea how to put it back together. Um, so Devin ended up having to use the house radar system, it's called, just the house board and um, all the stuff that they had in the studio, which he was not familiar with at all. Um, and it was it was kind of, it was one of the first ever digital systems, but it was just on the cusp of going out of date. Um, he wasn't familiar with it. He wasn't keen on using it, but that's all he had to use to record the record. So there were a whole load of setbacks right at the beginning that caused the production to be the way it was. Um, Mark Morton put it quite succinctly when he said, it set up this chain of events that wound up ultimately making for, frankly, kind of a piss-poor sounding production on the record. I mean... You know, maybe. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> we'll get to that, won't we, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, Devin Townsend said, the amount of mistakes that were made on a technical level entirely due to me making the assumption that, one, that it was easier than it actually was to do that job, and two, just being nonchalant about how much the sound of those prior records that they had initially been attracted to and hired me off the back of was actually down to me. So right. those are the problems he attributes with the um, with the production. At this point, it's probably a good idea to look at what Devin's production credits were at this point. And it's um, yeah. not very many, uh, really. Um, there are a bunch of Strapping Young Lad albums, as you would expect, um, many of which were self-produced. I always get the feeling maybe out of necessity rather than... Yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly heavy is a, a really heavy thing. I think. Um, but City was also self-produced uh, No Sleep Till Bedtime, which was a live album that they released around then. And as you mentioned, uh, SYL came out this year as well, the self-titled record. Yeah. Um, he'd also self-produced Ocean Machine, Infinity, Terrier and Physicist. Um, and then albums for other people. There was Pig Walk by Stuck Mojo. Um, Quite like that record. I don't, I don't know, actually. I don't know much Stuck Mojo. Um, but I'd be curious to hear that. You don't need to know much. Do you not? <laughs> okay. But yeah, a band I've not heard of called December. Um, uh, yeah, I remember them. The record was called. They got 
the record was called the Lament Configuration. Yeah, that got five Ks in Kerrang. Okay, okay. Any it's good? Kind of. I don't. I never heard it, but I, are they some sort of? They're a bit sort of post black metally before post black metal was a thing. I think. Okay, that sounds cool. Yeah. Um, and then the other credit was Natural Born Chaos by Soilwork. So, mm-hmm. including all his own stuff, he had produced four, five, six, eleven things before right which is not very many really um so it did seem like chris adler was putting everything on the sound of city and natural born chaos which you know to be fair i mean those records do sound fucking amazing so i can sort of understand that (laughs) um devin was worried about randy's behavior because he'd heard stories about how he could be difficult to work with and was warned that he would likely turn up drunk to sessions uh, the band decided that Randy wouldn't be allowed to drink during the sessions and elected Devin to tell him. Um, <laughs> so Devin um, apparently met Randy and then said, hello, my name's Devin. I'm the producer. Oh, by the way, you're not allowed to drink was more or less how that went. Uh, Randy agreed, but didn't keep his promise uh, and showed up one night at 3am with guys he'd met at a bar um to do vocal takes not the best wow. uh devon put up with that for a couple of days before telling chris and mark you can't come in the studio whilst i'm doing this because i need him to be clear devon says he needed a couple of days for randy to get the bad takes out of his system so he was just hoping that like they would do a couple of days of bad shitty takes and get randy warmed up effectively and get him to a place of trust with devon um so that they could get the best out of him unfortunately that didn't end up happening um chris and mark were hovering outside the studio like a couple of wasps and finally they come in the studio and say and say show me what you're doing and i said he's not ready yet and they repeat show me what you're doing so devon played what they had been doing and they said it sounds like shit and this is finally when randy you know he was about to get into the zone and start to get comfortable and instantly according to devin it was as if he was drunk and he said all right fuck you i'm out uh so chris and mark took over tracking for the vocals so um whilst this record is produced by devin townsend he didn't really record any of the vocals on it which is kind of interesting that is interesting uh randy did say i didn't really work with devin so i kind of thought of devin more as a friend during the recording of this record rather than someone i worked with he was working guitars bass and drums um but of devon's production style um it certainly was a step up for the band at that point um definitely if you compare it to burn the priest and new american gospel as we have been doing mark morton said we were able to do things in the studio that we hadn't done before very simple things like guitar overdubs layering things having four guitar tracks on a chorus instead of two background textual overdubs with the guitar vocal overdubs with randy just kind of really filling out the record and using more tracks um i think all three guitarists really benefited working with devon townsend who was pushing them reluctantly to get as tight as hell um he gave them a precision a precision that the band had never had before and i think personally if i were to describe the signature lamb of god sound i think precision is a word which very much sums it up it's so precise it's so on the beat it's so yeah 
you know, and, and I really do feel that this is the record. We've already kind of alluded to it, but I really do feel that this is the record where that really came together. Yeah, for sure. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I use the word scalpel, like there's kind mm. of um, Slayer are a band who are kind of, they attack you like a kind of scalpel to the eye, like thin shards of glass or a scalpel to the eyeball. Whereas some bands like Pantera smash you hard over the head. Do you know what I mean? And I, I feel like Lamb, the good thing about Lamb of God is they've got the kind of groove of Pantera, the kind of crush of those bands that smash you over the head. But they do have the scalpel-like precision of those very technical thrash metal bands. I think that's kind of one of the things that is um, why they've been so successful over the years is that that thing of me going, oh, you were never going to appeal to everybody ever again. They've kind of got as close as one could, I yeah. think, in the modern in in the modern era, and that's probably one of the reasons for it. I think. Um, speaking of Devin, there's a, a, a clip I saw where um, Chris Adler was saying Devin was pushing Willie Adler so hard that he came out of the room almost tearing up. Yep. After telling him to do it over and over and over again. Yep. So yeah, you know, um, you got to go through that shit to get better. And I mean, there's you've probably seen the Foo Fighters back and forth mm -hmm. documentary. Yep. Uh, and they talk about working with Gil Norton mm -hmm. on The Colour and the Shape and how they're just like, fucking hell, you know, this dude that worked with the Pixies and worked with R.E.M. and he's just like, I will not take a not good enough drum take or a not good enough guitar take or a not good enough vocal take. And it seems like that's the sort of thing that drives musicians absolutely to the brink of like, what the fuck do I have to do while they're doing it? Mm. But when they come out the other side, out the back of it, they're probably a much, much better band for having had to go through that. Always. I think The Colour and the Shape's a really good example, actually. It's a really, it's a producer making a band sound like they sound. Um, I adore the self-titled Foo Fighters record. It's a record we are going to cover on this series at some point. It is, um, yeah. But it's the least Foo Fighters sounding record um ostensibly because it's a demo album effectively um but they you know there, there was not a signature Foo Fighters sound to that album I don't think particularly um it has a through line that record but but what Foo Fighters became I don't think is particularly present on that album and I think Jill Norton did that but with this record Devin Townsend pushed this band into getting their own sense of identity because I think on New American Gospel and Burn the Priest, as much as I like New American Gospel, it does sound like a con um, conglomerate of lots of different influences rather than a band taking those influences and making it their own sound. But this is the first point where I think it does actually sound like a band making their own sound. Mm. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. <clears throat> um. Devin Townsend found uh, it incredibly difficult working on this record as well. He said, I broke at one point on this record. I broke at several points making this record, admittedly. But there's one point in the recording of the guitars where I was like, I don't want to play anymore. This sucks. This is really not fun at all. In hindsight, I think they were looking for an engineer to make them sound like a current metal band, which I couldn't offer. So straight out of the gate, I was really insecure about what I was able to do and compensated for that probably by working 15 hours a day. Um, Devin became so burnt out that when it came time to mix the album, 
Devin actually paid out of his own pocket to bring someone else in to mix it because he was just too burnt out at the time to do it himself. Mm. So, yes. Yeah. Um, he was struggling. I mean, I've we've both spoken to Devin a few times and whenever he speaks about that period, yeah, I think he was... I mean, you talk about Randy being uh, not quite a bit of a loose cannon. I mean, this is not the altogether superstar Devin Townsend that we now know of. This was the, you know, self-medicating, often depressed, bipolar, very unhinged Devin Townsend of the first few Strapping Young Lads records. And yeah, who was obviously growing weary with heavy music in general around that time. Um, hence why we only had a few more years of strapping young lad i've been listening to devin townsend's podcast series that he's been bringing out recently which i thoroughly recommend slightly annoyed that he's done it because it now makes the purpose of doing devin townsend albums on classic albums a little bit redundant because when you have the man himself talking about those albums for two hours it's kind of like it's difficult to beat that but anyway um (laughs) but it is fucking fascinating and i have just got to as we record this i've got to infinity uh which is his third solo album and came out in 1998 so five years prior to this and that's when things started to really get fucked up in devon's mind and drugs came into play and ego um which he'll admit himself and yeah it's really fascinating fascinating podcasts um but finish listening to this first um so uh um, yeah you've paid for this yeah you need to listen to it (laughs) um so a lot of what was attributed to the sound of the songs being fucked up basically was when they recorded them um coming out of the PA they sounded absolutely fantastic and then when the songs were transferred to a different studio for mixing supposedly in that initial transfer many of the songs lost their sonic subtleties um and it was basically to do with uh Devin was using a different version of Pro Tools and they had to transfer the songs to, I believe, a more upgraded, nicer version of Pro Tools. So if anything, it should have made the song sound nicer rather than worse. But by making that transfer, it irreversibly fucked up the the versions that they had. Um, and Chris Adler describes the first time we hear this come back over the system all this nice high-end shimmery guitar stuff is just stripped it's gone and now it's just this punching mush that really defeated the hours and weeks and days and tears that these guys had spent getting these incredible performances one of the engineers there had stripped all the natural drum sounds and put in samples over everything they sounded very thin and hollow and at the time the goal was just to make them sound audible and instead of having a really nice descending notes pattern on the toms, it was just that high-end click on each one, so it stuck out in the mix. It was a total knife in the heart. I was very hopeful up until that point, and then it really became an exercise in polishing a turd. Mm. Um, what do you think? I've sort of expressed that I never really had too many issues with the production of this record. 
um, when I heard it initially, although I will admit that that was revised somewhat. When I heard the 10th anniversary edition and what could be done with it, I did go, oh yeah, it didn't sound good, did it? Um, but what what are you you've you've actually compared the original um, to mixes, haven't you, for this the purposes of this? What were your findings? Uh, yes, so um, just to go down to what I've I've written about it because I thought we might be in this at the end. Um, I as I said, I never really cared much for this record, and the production I think definitely had a hell of a lot to do with it so when i heard they were going to be remastering the record for the sort of 10th anniversary edition um i was delighted to hear that because it's never been you hear a song like ruin in their live set yeah and you go that's a fucking great song yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's never hit me with the same level of precision it always it, you know I, for whatever reason i just feel like the type of what they'd expanded to as a band and what where they what they'd become as a band it did need a clearer sort of almost brighter production than, than what you got on the initial version of it. So um, Josh Wilbur, who has actually mixed the nothing by corn disassociation by Dillinger escape plan revenants by partway drive, Le Fon Sauvage by Gojira nightmare by Avenged Sevenfold. He's also worked with everyone from pink to Darius Rucker to faith Hill to limp biscuit, some 41 to thrice to LCD sound system to a Shante. So that's quite a, a wide yeah. mix of artists that he's worked with. Um, uh, the first time I listened to the remaster, I was like, oh, that sounds good. And I, I listened to it today. I listened to one track from the original. I listened to the original recording. Um, and then I listened to the remastered version of the same track back to back with my headphones um, in my best pair of headphones that I could possibly get. I love this and, kind of shit. Yeah. And there is just no way that the original holds up no. quite as well as the 10th anniversary edition. The 10th anniversary edition is superior in, in every way. Yeah. Um, the bass is, is much, is much brighter. So I think pronounced. The, is, is much more pronounced. The drums are, they hit with so much more force. I think the guitar tones are just sharper. Mm. Um, there's a weird, one of the things that I always thought that the, I could never quite put my finger on, but this has made me be able to put my finger on it. I feel like there's almost a weird hiss in the back of the original one, like you're hearing it recorded on like a dictaphone or something. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a load of extra ambient noise mm -hmm. in and around it that is just getting in the way of the songs. All of that's taken out. Um, that was a that was a weird hiss that I didn't hear until the 10th anniversary reissue. Like mm. weirdly... Um, I didn't hear it until it was taken away. Uh, but yes, yes, I know what I you mean. I mean, it's so clear. It when is. When you listen to the, the tent on, on a good pair of headphones as well. Um, I actually found a review of the reissue. Now, Metal Sucks originally uh, gave the album eight. I don't know why they've changed from eight to five stars. So, Or maybe they gave it four. Maybe they gave it four out of five initially. And they have redone, they reviewed the reissue of it. And they gave it five out of five. And they spent a lot of time going, look, we know this is a very special Lamb of God album to people. And some people might be like, oh, why? Um, but there's one thing that that I think I was like, that is it nailed. It says, you can put your skepticism aside. The 10th anniversary edition of As the Palace is Burned is great. In fact, the only argument for superiority of what shall heretofore be known as Palaces 03 is a sentimental one. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Oh, and it's funny because... It, 
The other thing, Renfrey, is I ran a poll just before we started recording this, and the um, the the poll got ninety five votes. And I did say, help me out, please, here, people. As the passes burn, which version do you prefer, Devin Townsend produced original or the Josh Wilbur tenth anniversary mix? Ninety five votes with a score of sixty percent, so sixty forty ended up being exactly over ninety five votes. The original. Devin Townsend version really? won the poll. Wow. So we are in the minority, although saying that, I asked for some reasoning and every single, only sort of four people replied, but every single person who replied gave me a reason why they thought the Josh Wilbur version was better. Okay. Um, in fact, someone else has just, as I speak, has just gone... Um, the original is a bit thin and abrasive sounding doesn't capture the fat low end that's so essential to that groovy sound so that's everyone who's actually given me a reason mm. has said the josh wilbur 10th anniversary reissue is the better and more superior version it's like brexit yeah, all over again it is yes it's, <laughs> well, it's not quite as close but um so i don't know why i've got no reason that i can read out to you as to why people would prefer Devin's original other than as metal sucks the only argument is a sen is a sentimental one people are very resistant to having records that they love fiddled with it's the george mm. lucas syndrome isn't it yeah. um yeah of course i you know the 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 one that comes to mind is the 20th 20th anniversary redux of pearl jams 10 do you know what I was about to say? Somebody has tweeted me and said, I loved the reissue of 10. Mm. And it made me, uh, he was like, I think it's, it made me listen to those out, that album in a completely new way. Yeah. I absolutely love it. It's the same thing. It's brilliant. I mean, I mean, I mean, if there are people, it has its detractors and, and, but I think it's purely sentimental because objectively it's better. The Redux than the original the original has a very 90s sound um very yeah. classic rock loads of reverb doesn't have an awful lot of punch um whereas the redux just is a real gut punch it's it's it, all the reverbs taken out um it's far more direct um redone by brendan o'brien brendan o'brien has established an amazing yep. um uh, relationship with Pearl Jam and has produced most of their records um, from verses onwards. Um, but I think getting him in to redo Rick Parsha's um, original production was definitely a cool thing to do. Um, but yes, I, I, I well, actually, going to I'm going <clears> to <throat> quote the person who who said that actually. So to give you one of the sort of six responses I had to that tweet. Um, at my oh my design said look i love the og and all its unique tinny qualities it's an amazing album that had um that had recording mixing issues and get that give it personality and charm the remix version is century it's just how incredible this album is i won't say this is how it should have been heard but i prefer it um i have similar feelings for pearl jam 10 remastered edition after growing up and living with it for over two decades it's like hearing it for the first time and falling in love with it all over again because of the modern remaster refreshes so much about something that you already adore i think that's a really good tweet and i pretty much agree with all of that yeah i 100 percent agree with all of that 100%. Yeah, so I, I, I 100% agree with all of it, yeah. I think um, I think the thing with As the Palaces Burn is what Devon and Lamb of God managed to do was capture 
some incredible performances, like really incredible. What sounded like a band in a room, I know it probably wasn't, but, you know, really incredible live raw performances. And unfortunately, somewhere along the line, by the sounds of things with this transfer, the production got fucked up. But the actual moments that they captured in the studio, I would actually argue, are some of the most frenetic performances that Lamb of God have ever captured. Not even some of, they are. I think they are the most frenetic because of that raw sound. Um, and unfortunately they were just mired by, I think <clears throat> I love Lamb of God and, and there are records later down the line, Sacrament and Wrath in particular, that I think are, you know, almost as good as this record. But they never quite they always ended up sounding a little bit more clinical from this point onwards as soon as they um signed to epic i think they got a sheen on them which makes it sound more digital than analog and what i love about as the palaces burn is it's lamb of god sounding analog and some people don't like that sound but i fucking love it mm. yeah i mean i can yeah, I can see it. I mean, I definitely feel a lot more warmth towards it now I've sat down and really listened to it a lot with the 10th anniversary Josh Wilber edition, just for um, a little bit of extra stuff on that as well. Um, Devin Townsend, actually, when when the album was re-released, the 10th anniversary um, was re-released, uh, he watched the documentary and listened to the record and tweeted out his thoughts on it, which were... Um, uh, a few tweets on the Lamb of God remix and documentary I just got and watched. One, it's really good closure for myself. It sounds great. Two, Sean, Thingvold, Dan, Carla and everyone in Vancouver saved that record. Without them, it wouldn't exist. I don't know who those people are. Yeah. I'm assuming they're engineers. Um, three, the band were very diplomatic and extremely kind in the interview. Thanks for that. It's been a thorn in my side for years. Mm. So obviously, you know, Devin has wrestled with you know mm. why the album didn't come out as he want or wanted it to and for josh wilbur is a maniac i couldn't even imagine the patience it took to make this come to life what a great job okay as you were so even devon himself is pretty much admitting yeah that, that 10th anniversary reissue is the superior version of it and it's the first time i've heard it and i've gone oh this album's fucking great i've always had to kind of I mean, I just, to be honest with you, mate, I just never really played it. Mm. It wasn't even like I just would listen to it and go, oh, I just listened to it a, bunch, a few times and was like, it's just not as good. And I just, it will be one that I just don't play. I mean, in a, in a, in a back catalogue of like one, two, three, four, four, you know, they've got about five albums that I really love. Um, yeah, they've got four that I really love and then they've got a few that I think are, are good as well. And this one sort of sat, not bottom, absolutely not bottom, but, you know, it was, um, I mean, when you said you were doing this, I was like, Renfrew, are you mad? I, I was like, really? Because it's been so long since I've listened to it that I just was like, are you really doing this one? That's mm. crazy. Mm. And we did have a little chat where, I mean, you know, I didn't blur you and go, you sure you want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but I was like, oh, I'm really surprised that this would yeah. be the one that anyone would pick. Um, I kind of do understand it and I don't. I still listen to the original version of it and I go, I cannot see why you would pick this as the best one 
in and amongst that great back catalogue. But then, I mean, the, some of the songs on it are fucking great, which we should probably talk about, really. Um, yeah, we'll go we'll go into the songs in a, in a moment. I mean, I, I think it is partly what I just said about this actually sounding like a band in a room and like actually sounding just so ferocious i i think i think it's the most ferocious randy performance i mean mate this or new american gospel but i think randy's a better vocalist on this record he's more of a loose cannon on new american gospel and whilst he does sound ferocious mm. at points i think the performance is better on this album you could argue i think records like wrath and even resolution um randy's performance is probably better than it is on this record but he never raged in the way that he did on this one i don't i don't think um and yeah i mean we'll get onto it in a minute but the songs are just fucking incredible um just a little bit more on the 10th anniversary reissue uh Chris Adler commented, we are lucky to have the opportunity a decade after our first attempt to bring what I consider to be our masterwork up to speed sonically. Um, Ever since the original release, we've been distraught about the sonic qualities of As the Palaces Burn. The band had captured lightning in a bottle and the budget limitation of a sophomore album turned our lightning into a firefly in a jar. The songs are undeniable and we've always been very proud of how this album launched our career. It feels appropriate to revisit now that we can and give this very special album the chance to reach our original hopes and its true potential. I mean, actually, Chris has just done a wonderful job of summing up why I adore this record, to be honest. Um, One more thing from Devin Townsend's Read the Anniversary. What we did is we captured something that I think all of us were surprised with. And I remember even the beginning, Mark said something that was strangely prophetic in a way. He said... I have the impression that this record is not going to sound like any other record, but it's going to be important because of that. Mm. And like that is, I don't think this album does sound like any other Lamb of God record, just like New American Gospel doesn't and just like um, Burn the Priest doesn't, but it was the first one to define their sound, you know? Um, I mean, that might be really easy for me to say as it was the first one I heard, but I do actually think that that is true as well i don't i don't think I mean, that's mate, inaccurate no even as someone who very very rarely listened to this record or listens to this record other than the last sort of few days um i always thought that this was the first time lamb of god sounded like lamb of god mm. i absolutely you know i i always thought that this songwriting wise song wise this was always the record where i was like okay that's the first time they put down lamb of god as lamb of god do you know what i mean in, in what we have come to know that there's absolutely no denying that that is definitely the case so yeah i can absolutely see that i mean um yeah go on where are we going next of it because i've got a few th- i was going to add to something um chris adler said about it being their definitive record which i'm quite surprised about but then i guess we'll kind of sum up where people think it sits in their discography as we get towards the end a little bit right well i was going to go into individual songs but you can talk about that now if you want he said um to bring what i consider to be our masterwork up to speed sonically Mm. yeah no no let's put a pin in that because we'll definitely come back to it yeah um yeah go on i mean song wise it's it it is as i list as i've been listening to it over the last few days there's some absolute fucking rages on here isn't there Oh, God, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Um, Shall we start with the title track? 
Yeah. Um, just under two and a half minutes. Just under two and a half um, minutes. Uh, Mark Morton lyrics, which uh, mm-hmm. Randy didn't like. Um, he said that he thought they were over dramatic and goofy. Uh, he used the line we'll dance as the palaces burn as an example of this i can see what it means but you know yeah um working titles it is heavy metal after all yeah i mean yeah come on yeah working titles for the song included swedish edit shop and swedish ass fuck due to the debt it owed to swedish death metal which i think is fair um as the palaces burn is a fucking rager isn't it yeah. yeah, there's a clip on YouTube of them doing it at Hellfest in 2003. Remember those old, not Hellfest in France, but Hellfest in when they used to have like the, the indoor, sort of indoor in a big cow shed Hellfest where all of these new wave of American heavy metal bands would play. And the clip of Lamb of God playing this song at Hellfest in front of like probably about 10,000 people, it, it is so savage. Mm-hmm. And it's two minutes 24 on the record it's about 90 seconds yeah when they play it yeah live it's fucking unbelievable i'd love to see that um get on it get on youtube it's really good really good uh let's head to purified um randy said he disliked purified's lyrics even more than he dislikes the as the palace's burn lyrics uh he's yeah. admitted that the rhythmic cadences are of the song are very unusual he described it as being off time and if he was to record it again today he would have done something different with his vocal lines saying my rhythmic sensibilities have progressed some um mm. it is it's a really unusual track and th- to place it as the third track on the record as well to have this really weird rhythmic cave and stuff i don't know i guess there's some um there is some like I, I when i think of dirt what's the third song on dirt rain when i die um, yeah and um i don't know but it's it's an interesting place to put that song but it is a fucking rager that said um chris adler said it showcases all that we were doing better than uh, chris adler said it showcases all that we were doing better than any other song on the record this song and 11th hour which we'll get on to to me are the best songs on the mm-hmm. record features mm-hmm. a guitar solo from megadeth's chris poland it does uh which is kind of interesting when you consider how lamb of god and megadeth's relationship would grow in later years to the point where megadeth were continually trying to poach chris adler from the band after he played on 2016's dystopia uh and joined the band on that tour uh he didn't he played with them he never he was never an official member of megadeth i should say uh, mm. On July the 1st, 2016, Adler left Megadeth due to continued pressure to join full-time and leave Lamb of God. Um, kind of sad when you think what's happened since. On the 12th of February, 2017, mm. Adler won his first Grammy Award for Dystopia, which won the Best Metal Performance category at the 59th Grammy Awards. Still mad for that one. Uh, <laughs> as he was... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as he, yeah, it's fine, that record, but, you know. Uh, as he was no longer a band member, he didn't attend the ceremony, uh, but the current Megadeth drummer... Um, oh, what's his name? Ferbiren? Ferbiren? Who's the current... Is that the current I, drummer? I, can't remember. I don't know. I have no idea. No he, idea. he attended instead. Um, now, interestingly, I don't know... I mean, I don't want to dig into sort of personal beefs and stuff like that, but... This was something that I was unaware of. In late 2017, Adler was involved in a motorcycle accident. 
yeah. he revealed he revealed the details of the accident a year later in September 2018 when questions were raised about his absence from the Lamb of God tour. And then following a period of time where Adler wasn't touring with the band, um, they eventually announced Art Cruz as his permanent replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, without getting too Heat magazine on the, about this, it feels quite a difficult, insensitive thing to do after a motorcycle accident, do you think? Or I don't know, am I... Well, it depends if you can physically play drums. True. I mean, well, yeah. If you physically can't play drums and... Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, and I I don't know. Yeah, no, I neither do I. I, I know what I've heard, but oh, I don't okay. know any anything that I could sort of factually go, oh, that's, a, that's why that happened. But yeah, he's had a, a pretty serious accident. I mean, maybe I'm putting two and two together and making and getting fired here, but I think you, it's quite a difficult physical activity to play drums for Lamb of God. Um, yeah. Similar thing happened with Joey Jordison. We never yeah. really knew why Joey Jordison left Slipknot until a few years later. He was, you know, there were stories of him being, you know, unable to walk down a flight of stairs and stuff. Do you yeah. know what I mean? So... Yeah. Uh, we don't really know. We don't really know, and I am uh, speculating somewhat, and I and I have no idea. But but there are definite um, uh, comparisons to be drawn with the Joey Jordison situation. It feels like to me, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, his actual brother's in the band as well, though, isn't he? So. <sighs> That would be a shitty thing to do. But then, as we were speaking about in the Sepultura special not so long ago. There's a Sepultura um, special. I mean, that does happen. Gallows, you know. I mean, there are plenty of examples of it. Black Crows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, who Oasis. knows? Oasis. Oasis, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, Christmas at the Gallagher household must be pretty shit at the moment. Um, <clears throat> shall we move on to... My... Mainly because Liam Gallagher's there, right? <laughs> Shall we move on to not only my favourite song on this record, but my favourite Lamb of God song of all time? Wow, go on. Surprise me, Renfrew. 11th Hour, mate. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I objectively think this is the best song Lamb of God have ever written. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I, all right. I subjectively think it, but objectively, I think it, I think it is perfect. I just, I love it. Um, the... I, I'm I'm not often a fan of breakdowns, but the breakdown on this song is unbelievable. Yeah, Un- it's massive. Unbelievable. And it gets they're me... They're good at that, aren't they? Oh my God, they're good at it. It gets me every time. Um, the opening riff is just massive. Um, I, I, Randy's performance on it is incredible. He's singing about stuff that he actually... Sometimes sometimes because not all the lyrics are coming from randy i sometimes get the sense that he maybe isn't fully behind everything that he's singing i think he's behind it but he isn't fully invested in the same way that he would be if he'd written the lyrics but um he wrote the lyrics for this one in fact mark it was at mark's suggestion that he write the lyrics to it uh, because he told him i want you to write a song about addiction so from that perspective Mm -hmm you could say this is lamb of god's master of puppets and whilst you could 
whilst I, I mean, Master of Puppets is a clear fucking classic in metal and it's an epic it's eight and a half minutes it's got various different parts to it etc etc you cannot just you cannot compare this to master puppets in that same sense but in terms of of it being a perfect metal song of its type i think there is a comparison there i just think i think i wouldn't change a single millisecond of 11th hour i think it's fucking perfect i love it it's very good okay <laughs> it certainly stands out mate i mean listen you just call it the best lamb of god song so mm. i'm not going to go fucking overboard with it because i'm going to be saying some stuff in part two about mm. best lamb of god songs and etc etc um yeah i think it's uh i think it's really great second single as well yeah you know so they obviously agree with you um well chris adler said in fact, chris adler said this and purified are the best songs on yeah. the record and he said it's their masterwork mm. as well so it's safe to mm. assume that he thinks it's one of the best <laughs> songs they've ever written yeah yeah well, he obviously does yeah i mean yeah it, it's very good i mean I, I think actually when I'm, I'm looking at the singles now ruin 11th hour as a palace of burn vigil were probably i think they're quite sensible choices for singles because yeah. i think all of them are the strong some of the strongest stuff yeah on the record personally they're probably the four best songs on the record realistically i think yeah yeah i think so yeah. uh boot scraper i like boot scraper yeah i like yeah. i like boot scraper um chris adler said that that song in particular is the one that lost the most fidelity in the transfers from their recording studio in virginia to the mixing studio in vancouver and mm -hmm. i think it has the most to gain from this process that we're going through now of remixing the song um do you I agree with that having listened to both versions this morning the most striking one and you said it in the phone conversation yeah. we had when you said please listen to that is vigil yeah i agree like not to kind of not to not to gloss over bootscraper too much but i think vigil is the one that really goes from a really good quite different song to a fucking, fucking incredible song yeah. com incredible completely you know almost it's it's the one that feels like the most like a completely different song yeah i think i, I in, in the hands of that remaster but yes i think boot scraper definitely scrubs up pretty well hey um hey. I, <laughs> I definitely agree that, Sorry. that this i mean it's acceptable um i definitely agree that vigil um benefits the most from this remix and remaster um but i do think boot scraper is a close second I'll, get, I'll I'll adhere that to Mr. Adler, yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, it's a wicked song. Uh, Randy said that the song is about paying the bills, which was a particularly difficult uh, thing to do during this time period because not only was I working a lot, not only was I not getting paid that much, but my paychecks were consistently bouncing. So the song Bootscraper is about the boss, right? The man. Well, I've got I've got quite a good quote regarding to that as we head into the epic years mm -hmm. a little bit later on okay. so i'm gonna stick a pin in that okay but yeah um you know mate on, on on reflection listening back to this record i mean it's funny because i feel like i'm listening to it for pretty much the first time i mean i never went back i didn't even i didn't go mad on the 10th anniversary when it first came out i don't even think i bought it i did give it a kind of cursory listen when it came out and i was still like yeah you know like this is still not my favorite lamb of god record mm -hmm but it does definitely sound better. But having really gone through it over the past couple of days, I 
do think it's certainly a far better record than I probably gave it credit for overall. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a real... I, I mean, as I, I grew up kind of thinking that it was the classic Lamb of God record until Sacrament came along and sort of took its place. But, um, you know, on further um, reflection, I realised realized that Ashes of the Wake was really the point where a lot of people came in which which obviously makes sense because that was their major label debut um yeah but for me well i feel like this is something we should probably go into later um i've discussed this with you privately but ashes of the wake is my least favorite lamb of god record um I, they are a band who i never know what the quote-unquote classic definitive lamb of god album is mm. There are some bands like Slayer, it's Raining Blood. It may mm. not be your favourite, but it is Metallica, it's Master of Puppets. Yeah. It is, mm. even if your favourite album, you're allowed to not have your favourite album be Master of Puppets, but it's not mine. Um, but Master of Puppets is the classic. There's, like, a, there's an argu argument for Black Album as well, surely. <laughs> not really. Oh, okay. I think... <laughs> I, I, is there do you think there is i think really? it, i think like, it depends what era of metallica you got into the, I, I think there are I, millions and millions of people who would say it's the black album um i mean i, I don't think I, you'll I, ever see i don't think you'll ever see a list of the greatest metal albums ever made and see anything above master of puppets from metallica i think it depends who does the list but I, I, I agree with you in most lists. I agree, certainly coming from a metal publication, I think it would be Master yeah. of Puppets. But I think it, like, I think if it was coming from a, I think if it was a metal list coming from a more indie publication, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 well, I, 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 it's debatable, I would say, I think. I mean, it was Rolling Stone magazine's number one best metal record ever. Uh, annoyingly it was um but but uh and, and actually we're going to it was in we're going to come yeah, to a rolling was, stone po uh, poll later where it's yes, also are, yeah. it's also above the black album mm. um and there's stuff like to, for more for more simple ones white pony by deftones hybrid theory by linkin park yeah. uh yeah. semper eternal by bring me the horizon like kind of just accepted as yeah the main the main one do you know what i mean so uh, but i don't i i still don't know what that is for lamb of god i always assumed it was sacrament just because uh redneck comes from sacrament and it's their biggest song yeah um well i'm guessing Hold a on. couple of years ago surely it's their biggest song i'm just just double checking that on spotify carry on yeah it is i'm pretty sure it is um a couple of years ago mark morton was asked to rank all of the lamb of god albums and he put as the palace of burn at number three in their okay. discography. Now, I'm going to um, slightly uh, call his bluff a bit on it because he put Strum and Drang 7 at number one, hmm. which I think, on, in retrospect, he himself would probably have to admit is yeah, sure not, not. not the case. <laughs> yeah. um, but the fact that he put it at number three, you know, uh, only a couple of years ago, he's actually said this. 
that was when we really started to recognize what we were doing as um what we were doing as songwriting instead of just stringing riffs together and barking over the top of it on palaces we started going wait a minute this part needs to repeat because it sounds catchy we didn't realize that's because it's a chorus dumbass <laughs> you want it to happen three times and probably twice at the end because it's a fucking chorus so like let's do that and there's this useful youthful naivety about that album and it sounds like shit and that's exciting because we re- didn't really know what we were doing and i think there's a charm to that so mark morton there almost kind of sticking up for the initial devon townsend um production himself if we're if we're we're sort of keeping count of you mm. know what sits where i i um i translate that slightly differently i translate it as he sees the charm in their approach to the songs as opposed to the actual production itself but but you know it could be taken either way i suppose Mm. yeah okay um but anyway uh we should probably move on um interesting little quote here actually that i found from that revolver article from 2003 um talking about success and talking about the new wave of american heavy metal and what was happening with heavy metal at that time you have said at the start of this i don't like the new new wave of american heavy metal was a load of bands i don't like and lamb of god um, Chris Adler said to Revolver during this time, it's pretty obvious that the pendulum of popular taste is heading back towards heavy music and you're starting to see heavier acts get radio play, MTV play, whatever. That's great for them, but we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And if the pendulum happens to swing that far, we'll be there. We didn't go into this trying to get on the radio or TV. Now, I don't necessarily, in fact, I don't think in any way whatsoever that is a dig at, you know, the new wave of american heavy metal bands but when you look at the ones from that genre who got success it was usually from uh sort of weaning down the sound and making the sound a little bit more melodic there's a song like dying in your arms by trivium great song but it's essentially a kind of metallic power ballad Avenged sevenfold got super successful off the back of city of evil which you know let's blend guns and roses and metallica let's take away all the screaming the anthemic choruses and the kind of lovelorn emo almost kill kill switch engage choruses that howard jones brought to the band turned them from a hotly tipped metal band into a massive kind of um mtv metal band Mm -hmm. the only band i'm bullet from a valentine are our bullet for my valentine if we're going to go with and i know they're not the america the new wave of american heavy metal but if you're talking about the kind of big bands from that time bullet for my valentine are just chances who wanted to be famous and they did they just copied what was popular at the time uh because they're shit um <laughs> so lamb of gods are absolutely the outliers and it's kind of ironic that save for revenge i guess lamb of god are the most commercially successful yeah of all of those bands yeah despite the fact that there is you know they've only really added any kind of melody uh to their sound in the last couple of albums in the last decade but when they were really really you know kind of breaking through big and you know we'll talk about getting top 10 us billboard chart albums and all this kind of stuff in the second part of this but you listen to this record and there is no compromise or absolutely no attempt at all no. to try and fit into some sort of trend or to to kind of grab that pendulum as it swung towards them at all. And I think that's that's amazing that they have been the outliers to this. And 
I, that I, they did that. I doubt they were aware of the pendulum when they were writing these songs. Um, they might have been aware that something was happening maybe as they were recording and maybe as they were releasing it. But when they were writing, then I'm, I'm not sure if they would have been aware of that necessarily. Maybe. Um, mm. But but yeah, I mean, undoubtedly it was happening. And, and Lamb of God always felt like one of those bands that never compromised their sound to get where they got to. As you say, they have introduced melodic elements on the last couple of records. But um, to be honest, when they introduced those melodic elements their commercial peak had already come and gone so mm. it wasn't i don't I, I don't believe for a millisecond that it was in a, a, an attempt to get more fans no. or anything like that i just absolutely not it's not it's not done in that way i just no yeah um they are to- they are total outliers about that whole what you need to do to get your band big thing like they are they are so much heavier than any of those bands in the new wave of American heavy metal who had that little tiny window where they might have got the odd thing here and there on MTV or whatever. And those bands either completely disappeared and became frankly kind of, you know, I love a band like Unearth, but they're not a kind of a relevant metal band who have done anything new and then, you know, no one really goes to see them in their droves anymore or Darkest Hour or whatever, another band I love. Um, or... They went super commercial and they really went for the, you know, like, let's try and sell, <laughs> like, let's try and turn into a rock band, essentially, that kind of US radio butt rock thing yeah. that Trivium had a go at it. Yeah. I mean, Avenged totally had a go, like, really went yeah. big on it. Um, Bullet, obviously, as I said, are just fucking sellouts. So, you know, um, and even Killswitch on that self-titled album, you know, they, they had a bit of a go at it as well. Yeah. And yet Lamb of God have never, ever gone down that route. And they're pretty much the most successful ones, with the exception of Avenged. Killswitch? Killswitch? They're more successful than Killswitch, aren't they? Surely. Maybe. Two number two albums on the US Billboard chart. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I, I guess I was thinking just in terms of um, what size venues they play in this country. I mean, Lab of God and Killswitch would both be on Brixton by now. Well, I mean... Killswitch Engage were, I mean, Lamb of God are playing Brixton, or would have been playing Brixton pre yep. the kind of COVID-19 um, pandemic, getting their, that, that tour cancelled. And I think that was either sold out or damn close to being sold yeah, out. Yeah. Um, whereas Killswitch Engage, and Killswitch Engage did play Brixton Academy a few months before that. They also supported Bullet from a Valentine at Brixton Academy a year or so before that as well. Oh God, yeah, they did, didn't they? Yeah, Whereas yeah, yeah. Lamb of God, Lamb of God was supporting Slayer at Wembley and Megadeth at Wembley. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, fair I enough. saw them. I saw them in, uh, at Wembley the day after the um, the attack at the Bataclan, mm-hmm. the the Eagles of Death Metal gig, and they played Wembley with Megadeth, and they were absolutely astonishing i mean again we'll probably come to that in the second part of this but they were absolutely fucking astonishing um i think they're and 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 when you look at where they 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 hit in the charts in comparison to kill switch engage yeah yeah comfortably higher and bigger i saw kill switch support maiden at the o2 but yes i suppose yeah Mm. you're probably right they probably are bigger um Mm. i think the outliers thing that you mentioned is interesting because i think actually the history is riddled with examples of bands sticking to their guns and becoming big. It probably doesn't happen as often as we would like it to, because we tend to encourage that type of thing. But if you think of a band like Faith No More, 
If you think of a band like, I think Deftones isn't a bad shout. Um, very different time isn't it oh yeah yeah true 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 i suppose you're talking about bands who come up through scenes aren't you in a way and i think deftones is a good shout yeah it's probably deftones are probably the closest thing Hmm. where they were seen as new metal for a couple of albums and lamb of god were probably seen as new wave of american heavy metal for a couple of albums and then they just weren't anymore yeah 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 maybe you're right um Mm. Should we do a couple more songs before moving on? Yeah, yeah, go for it, yeah. Uh, So Blood Junkie um, has an interesting lyric just because it's about George W. Bush. um, Yes. Which was a thing at the time. Fuck me. Oh, big thing. George W. Bush, Mm. I mean, I think Fahrenheit 9-11 came out this year, which is sort of one of the most derided movies in American history. I learnt due to your girlfriend telling me about it. Oh, yeah, she's not a fan. Yeah, 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 yeah. but um, yeah, I mean, the whole war in Iraq stuff and all that sort of thing was massive in music at the time. Uh, Pearl Jam released the album that this um, podcast mm. is named after the year before uh, mm-hmm. in 2002 and had a song called Bush Leaguer on it, which was a very direct response to George Bush to the point. Well, Eddie Vedder was going out on stage with the mask, wasn't he? They're wearing a George W. Bush mask. Yeah, he would he would yeah. he would come out mocking him and uh wearing a mask and pouring wine down his throat and all this sort of thing. And it led to fans in certain parts of the states booing and complaining and leaving and yada 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 but they stuck to their guns because that's what all the best bands do um but yes less surprising to hear it come from a metal band although maybe surprising to hear it come from a band from the south don't know yeah a little bit yeah. um but yes so Randy said the lyrics in blood junkie are about george w bush the whole thing was just so fishy during that time and it just pissed me off. And the lyrics are about that and just how tragic that time period in our country was. Mm. Um, great song. It's better now, though, isn't it? Thank God. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you when you have Americans going, God, I miss George W. Bush, you do realise what an absolute clusterfuck we are in at the moment. Mm. Um, we really need to talk about Vigil because we haven't yet. And it's yes. one of Lamb of God's best songs, as we've mm-hmm. discussed um brilliantly um benefits from the 10th anniversary reissue uh chris adler said of the song we knew when we wrote this that it was going to be kind of a special tune and we had this almost sabbathy approach to the beginning of it and in the end we knew that it was going to take off in this crazy speed metal section i think for a while we argued for this to open the record that would have been brave coming off the back of new american gospel that would have been very brave yeah um and and uh, better it's better where it is it's better ending yeah it's a great i think it's a great album closer yeah i i can see it as an album opener but it would have totally changed it would have completely changed the record um and not necessarily for the better i think Mm. um but yeah uh interesting that they were considering that for a little while Mm. um speaking of the kind of clean guitar intro uh mark morton said as i recall there was a certain amount of sentiment that it was weak or wimpy um to me there's nothing scarier than a clean dark melodic melody on a guitar line that's way scarier than anything loud and distorted i would counter that it's the dynamic between that clean weird distorted guitar line and then randy coming in with like like those his screams coming over that clean bit and then the whole band crashing in it just it's just massive sounds so good 
Yeah. This is the thing that people who no 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 I was about, I agree <laughs> with you but I was about to say this is the thing that people who really really get on that like metal's got to be train don't seem to understand. Yeah, is that it's if you're just careeringly fast and brutal and heavy all the time you're not anything other yeah, than that and exactly. that's not really that which means you're nothing yeah whereas what lamb of god did on this song is as you quite rightly say is accentuate just how brutal randy's vocals sound on it mm. um by and it does take, it takes you off guard when you hear after being pretty much pummeled for you know this album's Thir- 38 minutes it's long 38 minutes but at that, at that point you've been pummeled for 34 minutes basically yeah 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 pretty much yeah and it does make you go oh this is ending it on something different and i yeah. know you've spoken before about the oh why do metal bands just wait to the last song mm-hmm. to to like do, know, do an experiment a little bit yeah to do something different in but i think if you can do nine really great songs then you get away with it if it's uh, if it's done this well it, that's become a formula for a reason because it is a good formula but my complaint about that is hearing it done again and again and again and again and again and again and again um it's just done so fucking well here that i'm prepared to forgive it um yeah and also also this as you already pointed out this album's 38 minutes so i've been pummeled for 34 minutes and it is it, about 33 really because it's 442 yeah, so. yeah yeah and it, it is around that point like the song before it uh is blood junkie which is fucking great but around kind of a devil in god's country and in, in defense of our good name i am starting to go okay i need something a little bit different here now um and vigil comes in at a very good point i think whereas a lot of the records that i complain about that happening i have been sat for sort of 10 15 minutes just kind of desensitized to the onslaught that's happening around me and then they do a last song which is a bit different and i'm back in again but you know um if it's 38 minutes if the album as a whole is 38 minutes that's less likely to happen i think Mm. um the, li- yeah. the lyrics of Vigil are pretty heavy stuff. Um, so it starts out referencing religion, which is relatively obvious, I think. Um, it It's in the context of the Catholic Church scandal. Um, bless you. Um, Thank you. The molestations and so on and so forth that were happening in that. And then the lyric kind of evolves as it goes on into a more defiant take on the powers that be and the system in place um i always i've always loved love 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 loved randy's i defy you to continue line um the last minute minute and a half song is just this incredible fucking palm muted rhythmic race to the finish with randy just sort of i defy you to continue especially when you know what it's about um and that to me was just always so much more powerful than just having some hairy metal guys screaming and telling me to fuck off you know um i defy you to continue is more powerful to me than fuck you i won't do what you tell me um because it 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 it's 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 intelligent isn't it yeah i suppose so it, it it's it's anger through it's sort of sort of seething anger 
from an intelligent perspective. Yeah, and it's and it's it's also which which Randy is brilliant at doing, whether he's sort of talking or um or, or screaming or whatever. But I think the malice in the way that it's um delivered is so searing. And fuck you, I won't do what you tell me it could be aimed at the government or it could be aimed at your mum who wants you to tidy your bedroom. But the way that Randy says, I defy you to continue, could not be aimed at your mum who's asked you to tidy your bedroom. <laughs> you know, it is very much a, you have done a horrendous thing, in this case, ripping someone's innocence from them. And I am so furious with you I defy you to continue. And if you do continue, it's this isn't said, but it, it is made very clear in the intent and in the manner in which it's delivered that if you do continue, I will rip you to fucking shreds. And that is so much more powerful to me than fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. The kind me. of the the genuine unspoken threat yeah. of yeah. yeah it's yeah, an amazing right. it's yeah. an amazing way to end the record it's amazing yeah. I, I would it argue a, it's a great song yeah. i would argue bar well black label finishes new american gospel doesn't it bar black label and maybe king me might be the best ender to lamb of god record it's so good yeah black label opens new american gospel. oh fuck it does doesn't it okay so in that case yeah uh it's between this and king yeah. me in they used to end their set with it. That's but, why uh, I'm getting yeah. confused. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, so there you go. Um, that's the record. Mm. Uh, it reached number 64 on the US Billboard Top 200. Although it reached number 64 on the 30th of November 2013. So that would have oh, right. that would have been down to the 10th anniversary reissue, I imagine. I cannot find a placing for it. Um, on the Billboard two, Top 200 in 2003, which indicates to me that it didn't chart. Um, probably didn't, it? yeah. <clears throat> no, I mean, I was didn't. quite surprised that it got to that it hit number 64, but I was like, oh, yeah, maybe. But then it was... But at that... I mean, we'll talk about the chart position of of, of, uh, of Ashes of the Wake. Um, but, but in 20... In the next one. In 2013, so I got this from an article from... I think it was... It doesn't really matter. Um in order to get that position in November 2013, you have to sell a lot less copies than you would have had to get that position in 2003. So um, as the Palace is out, uh, Burn has sold around 6,400 copies in the United States in its first week of release to land at position number 64. It's crazy. So, you know, you, you don't actually have to sell all that much to get a position like that in 2013. But in 2003, you did. Um since its May 2003 release, according to Nielsen SoundScan, As the Palace Has Burned has shifted 270,000 units, which is not a lot. I mean, this is probably one of the least well-selling albums we will talk about in classic albums, I'm guessing. Um, I think there'll be a few from some of the smaller bands and Lamb of God. There will be smaller bands. And there are. I mean, I, I know you've got We Came As The Romans by Botch on there and stuff like that. There, there yeah, will, I reckon there, that's probably sold fuck all. Yeah, yeah, probably. There, there, there will be ones, but it is definitely like taking the entire list into account, bearing in mind we talked about Pink Floyd and Guns yeah. N' Roses. <laughs> it, will, <laughs> yeah. it will be one of the one of the lowest, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, 
2017, Rolling Stone voted as the Palaces Burn number 86 in their top 100 greatest metal albums of all time. Which is quite funny because they gave it three out of five. I mean, you know, most yeah. of it, as you'd expect, most of the metal press were pretty nice to it. it got eight out of ten in Blabbermouth. Got album of the year in Revolver back then as well so right. that's okay. um i've pulled a quote from the the three out of five i found the three out of five rolling stone review it says so how black do you like your metal mm. doesn't seem relevant to this but no. virginia's lamb of god pull out all the thrash gimmicks double time double time kick drums twin gut twin guitar assaults grunting vocals apocalyptic visions of mankind's end etc but unlike many of their overreaching slipknot influenced contemporaries Lamb of God deliver a meticulously crafted metal assault. Uh, Slipknot influenced? It's pretty funny, isn't it? I suppose off the back of Iowa, um, uh, we should have probably pointed out that Slipknot had a fair bit to do with, you know, bringing brutality back to the masses a couple of years before this. They did. But um, I don't listen to Lamb of God and go... Oh, they're ripping off Slipknot. No, not at all. No, <laughs> um, no not at all. If if you could, act, if you know, you, you you go to Pantera, don't you? Pantera's the one. Yes. You know. Yeah, yeah. Lamb, Lamb of God are Pantera for the 21st century. I'm sure people have said that before. You know, like like that is that that's mm. the gateway. I mean, yeah. This was a review of Lamb of God from 2003. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah. I would have thought Slipknot was so close to that rearview mirror yeah. that they just went, well, that's it. I mean, Pantera actually split up this year, didn't they, in 2003? Yeah. So Pantera were in a right old... Um, they were in a pickle. Funny old place. They were in a pickle. Mm. Um, mm. But you said, yeah, Rolling Stone named the album 86 on their list of 100 best metal albums. Yeah. In 2017 when they did that list. So the entry they put in um, for this list, um, compared to that review, said, after two raw but promising albums, one released under the name Burn the Priest, Virginia's Lamb of God took their sound to the next level with 2003's As the Palaces Burn. Devin Townsend's production helped sharpen Mark Morton and Willie Adler's Razor Wire guitarists on tracks like Ruin, Eleventh Hour and Vigil, while drummer Chris Adler pushed the music like a coachman whipping a team of hysterical horses and vocalist Randy Blythe simply roared bloody murder into the maelstrom. Groove orientated and jacked up to the extreme, this was thrash metal for a new generation, though a guest solo by former Megadeth guitarist Chris Poland on Purified also underscored the band's debt to the style's originators fairly rudimentary interesting. yeah interesting but fairly rudimentary yeah. uh, i mean let's put this list into context it's not the best list in the world um it is from rolling stone and metal is not rolling stone's forte um just to give you the top 10 super quickly paranoid by black sabbath is number one which i find personally i don't know if i've ever expressed this i find that mortifying because i think i think par- <laughs> not even the third best black sabbath well album. yeah yeah n- yeah it's nothing nothing against black sabbath but but for me, Paranoid, it might be... It's the big hits, isn't it? I Paranoid? know, I big, know, big, big I hits. know, I know. War Pigs is amazing. Paranoid is amazing. But the second half of that record, at the time, you would have turned the vinyl over as a big drop-off. Um, and of the first... I'm not sure I agree with that, actually, Renfrey. Mm. But of the fir- I, don't, I don't rate Iron Man particularly. I would take Fairies Wear Boots over Iron Man or Paranoid, personally. Ooh. Oh, okay. That that'll be an interesting conversation one day. Um, I, it's probably my least favourite of the first six Sabbath records. I think. Oh, you've put me well on the spot now. Uh, I don't like ranking those first six Sabbath records. No, fair but enough. It's, I mean, it's, I don't know. My point is, 
It's a very good album, but I would have chosen a different Black Sabbath album. Uh, Master of Puppets is number two. Uh, British Steel by Judas Priest is number three. Number of the Beast by Iron Maiden is number four. I mean, that wouldn't be my favourite Maiden album either. Uh, the first Black no, first no, me neither. first Black Sabbath album is number five. Rain and Blood by Slayer is number six. Uh, no Remorse by Motorhead number seven. That is weird. Just that. saying it in that voice because I would have expected it to be Ace of Spades or Bomber or Overkill. Or, Overkill's the one. Or even um, the fucking live album, No Sleep to Hammersmith. But no, yeah. <laughs> No Remorse, which is an album I don't think I've ever heard. Um, Peace Sells But Who's Dying right. by Megadeth uh, at number eight. Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne at number ten, uh, nine. And Vulgar Display of Power by Pantera at number ten. It's a bit of a... So you've got not the best Megadeth album in there. Yep. Not the best Slayer album in there. Yep. Although I will accept that yeah, it yeah, probably yeah. is. Um not the best Metallica album. My, neither of the best Black Sabbath albums. My two least the best my, album. my two least favourite Black Sabbath albums from the first six, personally. I, a lot of people mm. will go mental at hearing that, but yeah, they're my least favourite. Yeah. It, I agree with that. I, I, I do agree with that. I was thinking, would I put Paranoid fifth or sixth? But certainly the first two. I mean Master against sabotage and sabbath and, and sabbath four. And master reality yeah and it, volume four it's like mad come on. it's mad yeah um, not a chance so it's a pretty vulgar display of power is absolutely not the best pantera album no i i I, I i agree with you there as well although it is considered the classic isn't it but but yeah it yeah. is weird that um but, um, but yeah um I, so it's not like the most amazing list the other thing i'd say from that top 10 Bearing in mind this list was done in 2017. God, it's only three years ago. It's quite depressing because the most recent um, entry in that top 10 is from 1992, which is Vulgar Display of Power, which I, which again yeah. just shows to me a bunch of non-metal journalists putting a list together who haven't really listened to much metal in the last few years. Um, I've gone through the entire top 100 and there's very few albums from the 21st century in it at all. Leviathan's mm. in there. Um, God, I can't even remember off the top of my head. Um, disappointingly, the top 20 is just a repeat of bands that have already been in the top 10. Bar, Dio, Merciful Fate, Tool and Anthrax. Um, and Tool ends up being the most uh, modern entry in the top 20 with Enema from 1996. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. So then, I do remember that coming out that list and being like, "Shut up!" Yeah, and that is why I think I went as the palace is burned. Right, the best Lamb of God album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but again, it was like, oh, is that the one of the best? I don't. Yeah, mm. I mean, yeah, not a great list. But it's not a great list. I guess, Rem but I'm pleased that as the palace is burned is in there. Yes, Definitely. fine. So I mean, um, what happened next? after this and i guess is where we're going to which is um in late 2003 uh Lamb went out onto the headbangers ball tour with kills with joint headliners killswitch engage um i actually went off and found because i did a an interview uh, i did a feature for metal hammer the story behind the song uh about laid to rest and obviously laid to rest is one of Lamb biggest songs it comes on um ashes of the wake and i so i didn't really speak about uh, as the palace is burned at all really but i did speak a little bit about the kind of the pre 
um, release of that record. Um, and Mark Morton actually says to me, um, we went out on the Headbangers Ball Tour in 2003. It was us, Kilsit Engage, Unearth, Shadows Fall and God Forbid. We'd even swap the bill around every night because at that point, all of us were in very similar positions in our career. There was no real standout huge band. It felt like we were all coming up together. There was a sense that something was happening, which was really, really exciting. Um, but then... Uh, then Lamb of God signed to Epic Records, which is a major label. Imagine hearing everything they've done until this point and being a major and going, let's let's sign them. That is insane. Well, I think... That's mad. I think um, by the time... Were they signed in 2004, 2005? I don't know. Maybe it was 2004. 2004. Um, but I think, obviously, the majors could see that something was happening. Um headbangers ball probably did an awful lot for that but um yeah i think they could see something in this new wave of american heavy metal movement which ended up being a pretty short movement i mean despite what the wikipedia entry says which seems to claim that it started in the 17th century or something insane like that um but mm. uh yeah it, it was quite a short-lived movement really i think um and it almost i mean this it almost ushered in the era of movements not really becoming a thing yeah it's pretty much the last one isn't it yeah really? because i mean i i wonder even if there's an argument to say if this looking back on it now was this even a movement because i think with the internet proliferating as it did that kind of uh that kind of negated the need for movements and people had more choice and more control i suppose I suppose this is a transitional period, isn't it, really? Where it's a movement of sorts, but the internet is giving power to people more. And therefore, rather than having this is the new sound shoved down your face, throat, face, throat, uh, it's, mo it's more of a, well, I can now curate what I want to listen to and I can go out and listen to whatever. Like, we don't really have scenes anymore. Um, no, I was about to say, I mean, in terms of a a kind of local scene i mean i suppose is america does, does that count as a local scene because well, all of these bands were from very different places weren't they that kind exactly of lumped into the new wave of american heavy metal and, and I, we I, then had... I, I was gonna say when we talk about modern scenes these days we usually tend to say oh there's a really br brilliant um uh scene in heavy music in in britain at the moment <laughs> yeah. but yeah. None of the bands have anything to do with one another. And, you know, at the moment we're getting... Like, Kerrang! did a brilliant example of this by putting Milk Teeth and Employed to Serve on the cover at the same time. And, and mm. just that tour even happening, just based on the fact that they're two really good British bands, basically. Um, yeah. But, you know, musically, you've got fuck all in common with each other. Yeah. But, you know... I mean, I think, because after this, you get the kind of MySpace deathcore... Yeah. and the the crunk core like the crunk scene and yeah. then you know like the crab core and all this and there's more and more and more and more and more and more just words with core on the end i feel That's like when all that started happening just after this really isn't it and they like locality has nothing to do with any of that it's no. all about haircuts and, and sound and how tight your jeans were essentially wasn't it yeah and i feel like those scenes in in particular are scenes that sort of came from the bands themselves um who were new to this sort of trying to create hype and try to create some sort of marketing uh of their own 
And so they were just coming up with these absolutely ridiculous sort of joke names, which they probably came up with when they were stoned or, or, you know, for a laugh. It was almost like a private joke in in the band. And they just sort of stuck for a short period of time because it was their it was their futile early attempts to sell themselves and bands historically are not very good at selling their own kind of music we've sort of said in the podcast in the past that the worst people to describe their own music is bands like they are they yeah, they are really bad at describing it themselves and when you're really 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 close to something it is very difficult to describe it yeah. um but yeah, I kind of feel like all that crunkcore stuff and was almost like early attempts at bands attempting to describe their own sound and and, and stand out from the pack, basically. Mm. And then the irony was their music was it sounded like every other shitty band of that type. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, I mean it's true. It is kind of yeah, I think kind of what was left of emo and the new wave of American heavy metal, we never really heard anything like that particularly ever again um those sort of those sort of words anytime they have tried to become a thing i mean i think like new grave Kerrang had a go at new grave a few years ago which oh was just God, yeah. like new year's day and well i think it's just new year's day actually that was but, really um, short-lived wasn't it new and that grave. was yeah and it just it's never taken off i mean death gospel when was the last time you heard anyone apart from us going oh i wonder why they called it death gospel like death gospel came around for about a minute and it's just not a thing it's just not a thing so yeah it's kind of interesting that lamb of god were they escaped it's almost like the music industry as it was was just about to change completely and lamb of god were almost they kind of set fire to it and ran away didn't they yeah they were on the cusp of it you know what i mean and i think that and it and Go on. Go on, sorry. I, I feel sorry for bands who um, formed around this time because this was the first wave of bands who um, were expecting support from a music industry and didn't get it, basically. Ruben. Ruben, yeah. <laughs> oh, Ruben. Just say Ruben. Yeah. And then you're like, what What happened to Ruben? Yeah, 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 exactly. What, what happened to Trailer Dead? Well, you look, know what I mean? look at... Um, a lot of that again i'm gonna say it again but a lot of that sort of british scene at the time again uh, a music scene where none of the bands really sounded like but ruben um uh vex your red your code name is milo um uh 100 reasons hell is for heroes uh, a to a degree um yeah. you know well 100 reasons have got themselves to blame frankly but you know uh yeah yeah that's that'll be an interesting chat um yeah um uh but um you know all of those bands in many ways got shafted in one way or another or had a taste of um uh major label money but then the major labels just didn't have a fucking clue what to do with them um Mm. so i mean you know Hells for Heroes had a particularly tawdry time but around around that time of yeah. that stuff. So. so just to kind of pick up on that and bring it back around to Lamb of God, because we will be going into um, the Lamb of God's major label years uh, on the next part of this podcast. But before we sum up Ashes of the... Uh, sorry, As the Palaces Burn, um, we will... I just... I did this feature, as I said, with um, 
with Lamb of God, I spoke to Mark, I spoke to Randy about Laid to Rest. And I asked them about signing to Epic and saying, well, you know, this is your major label debut. Um, Mark said this, I remember feeling an immense amount of pressure when we went to write and record Ashes of the Wake because this was a new chapter for our career and it's not enough to just do as well as you've done before on records like this. You can't stand still. You have to surpass your previous material. That was their mindset going into it after signing to a major. Randy, interestingly said this Renfrey and I think what you've just said about bands not receiving the right amount of support or being treated in a way that weren't expecting funny how it's worked out the opposite way with Lamb of God um Randy said this to me we all had day jobs we'd all go off on tour and come back and have to work in construction or whatever we decided that if we were going to take the band seriously then we needed to be able to really commit to it there aren't many jobs that will go sure take six months off your job will be waiting for you for when you when you get back so we decided to go with epic because the advance meant we could quit our jobs but the punk rocker in me did feel pretty weird about it. I was suspicious because it was so far away from where I came from. I thought we'd follow the Sex Pistols model. One album and out. We were this disgusting sounding metal band. I never thought that that could last. We'll be talking about whether or not that could last in the second part, which will be flipping to me um, picking Sacrament. But to end this part, Renfrey, um, you've chosen this as one of the classic albums and i did have a feeling that i was going to be coming on here and going fucking hell man lamb of god are a great band and you've pretty much picked one of their albums that i just never ever ever listened to you could have picked pretty much anything else from their back catalogue bar maybe the last one and i would have had an easier time dealing with it what i've learned going back and listening to this record and particularly really properly listening to the 10th 10th anniversary edition is that this is um like you've said throughout this 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 podcast an incredibly important moment in lamb of god's career um it's debatably the most important moment. the most and well i was going to say the most you un- certainly the most unique moment of their career mm. they're on prosthetic they are thought of as an extreme metal band and they blossom into something else the fact that it took them 10 years to fully be able to realize and be able to show people exactly what they had blossomed into. And I now feel very silly being like, oh, you know, as the palaces burn is kind of like, it's the first one that, that it's Lamb of God sounding like Lamb of God, but they didn't nail it until later on in their career. Mm-hmm. I do feel silly now feeling like that because this record, you know, I'll talk about it more in the second part, but it may well now have surpassed other albums Ooh. that come later in their career that I thought were better than it. Ooh. That I thought were much better than it. That's good. That I own on vinyl. Um, oh, right. So I definitely now feel like I have a far better understanding of why As the Palace is Burn is great. And that's coming from the mindset of someone who really loves Lamb of God. Mm. So I'm really glad you picked this. And I think... I mean, I look forward to being tagged in to kind of go forward into those years and explain more and more about it. But I think I can do it more with uh, with a with a much um, with even more uh, education and understanding of what type of band Lamb of God are through going fucking deep on this record because it is a very very important probably the most important moment of their entire career yeah and 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 as a you know musicians say quite a lot that albums are just meant to be documents of moments in time 
Um, in a way, albums aren't meant to be perfect. And to be honest with you, this isn't a perfect record. Um, but for for many reasons, and actually reasons beyond even the 10th anniversary reissue, I, I don't think it's a perfect album. But in terms of um, capturing a moment in Lamb of God's career, I think it is the most successful album at capturing. I mean, really, if you want to capture Lamb of God's if you want to see what they are and what they're about you go and see them live but that's the case with most metal bands or most bands full stop really um but in terms of capturing it in the studio on record i can't think of an album that's done it better and also capturing a transition period and a record that captures a band becoming the band they're going to be um gaining their own sense of identity and um an album that captures um a band learning to be who they're going to be and i think if you listen to new american gospel and then you follow it up with as the palaces burn that's exactly what you hear you know um chris adler said just it feels like i should be giving him one last shout out um uh I think the strength of the songwriting on this record is the best we've ever done. And it's still my favorite record that we've ever done. So Chris Adler agrees with me. And that was um, a quote from 2013, around the 10th anniversary uh, uh, Redux, Remix. Uh, I'll leave the very last word to Devin Townsend, just because he's a fucking legend. Um, what we got was this dusty cowboy version of this kind of European thrash thing that was so rooted in conflict between all of us that that's what resonated with people. It's that really scrappy, can-do attitude that really comes through. It's like, no, it doesn't sound good, but man, it's satisfying. And I think that's ultimately how it ended, and that's how I reconciled it with myself. Regardless of the sound quality, the production captures something, including the vocals, let's be fair, that are completely representative of that time and place. And that is why it's my favourite Lama God album. Fair. That, that cannot argue with that, Renfrey. Um, and I look forward to giving you the um, my repost as to why it isn't the best Lama God album, even though it is a very, very good Lama God album, in part two. So... Um, Right, so in the next part, we'll be looking at the major label years. We'll be seeing what happened with Ashes of the Wake and then moving on to my pick, which is Sacrament. And then um, probably sort of wrapping up on on everything Lamb of God that we feel that we need to wrap up on. Absolutely. I would have thought. Yeah. Um, so that's coming. I mean, if you are listening to this and we've put this out for free, which we very well may have done. Um, thanks very much for listening. Why don't you go over to patreon.com forward slash riot act podcast and you know sign up for our five pound a month tier where you get two of these a month i mean you're getting three this month because this essentially is is two albums in one mm. so uh you're getting two for the price of three three for the price of two <laughs> i should say fucking hell guys i could like... work on a fruit and vegetable that's for sure <laughs> too much maths i'm not i'm like russell not no russell crow in a beautiful mind it's I like, like listening to me at the end of broken records uh it's the third <laughs> yeah. worst second best oh fuck yeah it is but anyway we very much appreciate if you have signed up for the patreon page as i said patreon.com forward slash right act podcast part two um 
our chat about sacrament should be over there right now so if you're absolutely gagging to go and listen to it then um why don't you sign up and there's plenty of other stuff there already um we've got the likes of roots by sepultura we have got pink floyd's the wall double special we've got radiohead we've got blur we've got oh we've got loads of stuff we've got um Pinkerton. Marilyn, Marilyn manson and we've got uh, weezer guns and roses guns and roses loads of stuff weezer yeah loads of stuff going on and there will be one coming up after this very very shortly as well we haven't decided what that's going to be yet um but anyway thank you very much for listening uh and next week or in part two you can go over to that now and walk with me in hell <laughs> say goodbye renfrey <laughs> goodbye <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with that see you later <laughs>